Welcome to Cocktails and Calamity, the show where we get inebriated and discuss the fallout of technology, politics, and the social transformations shaping humanity's global future. And we are live. Welcome to Cocktails and Calamity, the show where we get lit, get comfortable, and discuss the fallout of technology, politics, and the social transformations shaping humanity's global future. We've got an excellent show for you today. Uh, we've got Kristen and I here, and we're meeting with Chase Oliver. Chase recently ran uh, for the late John Lewis's seat in the 5th Congressional District of Georgia for the United States Congress as a libertarian. He's a leader in the Georgia libertarian movement and uh, looking to run for office again soon, eh, Chase? Oh, yeah. Uh, always looking to uh, spread the message of liberty however I can do it, get on any ballot that I can. Well, we really appreciate it, and I think it's so important because— one of the things that are, I think libertarians do so well is they bring real issues and real policies to the table that need to be discussed that often, um, you know, the, the two major parties uh, ignore. And I think it's so important to be talking about these issues. Um, and our focus tonight, we've got a, we've got a threefold topic. So number one, we're going to be discussing the ballot measures across the country and the legalization of various drugs or at least the decriminalization of those drugs. Uh, we're going to be talking about the overall war on drugs and what it has accomplished and what it has failed to do. And we're going to be going a little bit into the post-election insanity that we're experiencing right now, potential constitutional crisis. Um, the world is insane. The world is upside down. Chase, how the heck are you? Uh, I'm doing fantastic. I'm just enjoying a lovely evening at my home. Uh, I just enjoyed a lovely meal. And uh, yeah, I'm watching... The, uh, the two parties uh, tear each other apart. So you know, it's, it's like a libertarian's dream right now. <laughs> it is. Um, it's, it's definitely something. And, and so, you know, we were, we were chatting with Chase earlier about, you know, after an election, if you're a libertarian, what happens to you? And, you know, both parties kind of tear at each other, uh, tear at the, the third party vote. Can you tell us real quick before we get into the main topic? what you're experiencing with that right now? Like, are you experiencing this idea of people coming at you being like, you screw this election up for us? Like, what, 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 what are people coming at you and saying? So I, I am getting a little bit of that from the Republican side. You know, I, I live here in Georgia and uh, Georgia magically became a swing state in 2020 for the first time in a generation. And, uh, you know, our presidential candidate, Joe Jorgensen, uh, beat the spread many, many times over. She's got over, uh, last I checked, it was like over 70,000 votes in the state. Um, which, you know, is the, she had the second highest vote she ever got, uh, or for libertarians other than four years ago with Gary Johnson. So she did fairly well, I think for a libertarian and, uh, and yeah, so a lot of Republicans feel like our votes, our libertarian votes actually belong to the Republican party. And so they feel like they're, they're upset that libertarians voted for a libertarian candidate. And my answer to that is, is Republicans, if you want libertarian votes, uh, they're there for you to take, but you have to have libertarian priorities and libertarian platform. And uh, Donald Trump, uh, among presidents, is uh, certainly amongst Republican presidents, is the least libertarian president uh, in probably the last hundred years. So uh, there was really not much for the true libertarian voter to, to really enjoy out of right. Donald Trump. So uh, I wouldn't right. be voting for him. Uh, I would have probably been a uh, either a Biden if there was a ranked choice as my second choice or a, or a do not vote kind of situation if they forced me into that binary position. So, uh, yeah, I think yeah. I would have been for this election if we had ranked choice voting. I think I would have been Biden just because generally I, I need to get, you know, Donald Trump out of office, then Joe Jorgensen right after that. And then uh, and you don't have to put the person you don't want. You don't have to put Trump on the ballot if you don't want to. 
No, you can always <laughs> leave the shit candidate just right <laughs> off the ballot and you don't have to worry about them if that's your opinion. And if you don't like Biden, you know, in a ranked choice situation, you can always just leave Biden off too. So there, there, there's definitely a lot of flavors of libertarianism. Some people are seeing this as an opportunity uh, to speak to our issues more now that there's going to be a new president in town who um, presents kind of a natural opposition to some libertarian issues like the second amendment and some other things. So like mm. they're preparing for like that battleground. Right. But then there's right. other issues like uh, criminal justice reform and our topic that we're talking about tonight, the war on drugs, that seems like there might be a glimmer of hope and, uh, and we're ready to apply the pressure where needed to get Biden to act. So uh, we hope that uh, folks out there are ready to do the same thing. That's yeah. fantastic. Interestingly enough, in regards to the second amendment, I was reading a few days ago that um, gun sales have plummeted stocks stocks have gone down in guns they're they're attributing it's attributing it to the announcement about the vaccine and a lack of fear for public unrest (laughs) yeah that's fascinating i would have thought that the the fear for public unrest would have gone up since trump is not conceding and like there's this battle going on I, i thought that would have done it but it's actually interesting because when the dow jumped a couple days ago because of pfizer a lot of our tech stocks, a lot of my tech stocks actually drop. A lot of our tech stocks actually dropped. I saw Zoom drop and a lot of these others because they're going, well, people are going to be going back to work. You don't, you know, they're not going to be using Zoom as much. Yeah, cruise lines are up too, man. If you, uh, you should, if I'm telling you right now, if uh, you had extra money five months ago, you should have bought Carnival Cruise stock because they're up like 25% now. So, I mean, yeah, it's uh, been fun watching the stock market go a little crazy. And uh, you're right, Zoom. You invested in Zoom, man. You, you should have bailed out like right before. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering which elected officials probably had money in Zoom and tech stocks who dumped it right before Pfizer announced too. You know, you always wonder those things. You always wonder those things. And I, I encourage people uh, to look at that because, you know, uh, one of the issues in, in our runoff here in Georgia is uh, is Purdue and his selling of, uh, of stocks uh, right as he found out about COVID. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's actually interesting because I, I bought quite a bit of Zoom uh, right at the low, the bottom of the market, right when it dipped to the bottom. We we're getting like $50, $60 a share. Um, now, if I had, you know, the infinite wisdom, I would love to dump it on Sunday. But, you know, this that's it's not going away anytime soon. You're so like 400 the, bucks a share. You're not in the 1% club. They're yeah. the ones who get that. Yeah, they're the ones who get that. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's, let's, dig into, let's dig into, first of all, let's talk about the ballot measures across the country, um, the legalization or at least the decriminalization of not only cannabis, but psychedelic. Um, and then in Oregon, the actual decriminalization of small amounts of all drugs, amphetamines, heroin, uh, cannabis is obviously already legal, but this, these are huge movements. We've never seen anything like this before ever, but I'm just going to go through a list real quick of all the states who have ballot measures that pass. We've got Arizona, Mississippi, Montana, New Jersey, Oregon, South Dakota, Washington, D.C. And I actually read that it would have probably been double or even triple that had it not been for COVID because there was an issue with getting signatures that kept um, uh, them to, from getting as many ballot measures uh, that they that they would have liked to state by state. That's, yeah, I saw that um, they said this morning already in Maricopa County in Arizona, they were starting to um, dismiss marijuana possession charges. Fantastic. That's great. Right off the bat, yeah. Yeah. It's um, fantastic. Yeah. Chase, why don't you walk us through kind of your perspective on this? And um, you know, if you have any specifics that you want to you want to start uh, knocking out, let's let's go through them. Oh yeah. So uh I think it's it's first off, it's it's been a long time coming. This for you know, for the libertarian and me, and for many progressives as well, this is something that we've been wanting to see for a long time. 
Um, and I think it, it's not just a, a matter of, oh, you have the right to put what you want in your body. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, Kristen, this is now about uh, getting people out of jail, freeing people from the bondage that they're in uh, due to these nonviolent crimes where they've done nothing but ingest uh, a plant or, or some sort of substance. Um, so I think it's, it's something that definitely is there to celebrate. And, you know, people, uh, you know, people poo poo all the time, libertarians. Oh, well, your, your candidate got 2% or whatever in the vote. But what I remind people is that these libertarian ideas that we've been fighting for for decades now are actually coming to fruition. And this is about the long game for libertarians. We understand that the White House is, is a long shot, but that we can push the ideas into the sphere, into the realm uh, of ideas. And this is a big victory for libertarians across the country. Libertarians are celebrating, uh, certainly in all of these states. Um, and then the two that are very noteworthy is, uh, as you mentioned, Oregon, which is uh, doing its own kind of Portugal experiment, which I'd love to talk about how uh, decriminalization helped Portugal. Yes. Um, but then also you have South Dakota, which not only de uh, passed medical marijuana, but also passed recreational marijuana. So now it's not just a uh, something that you can go out and ingest at your leisure. It's also something that's being used to treat disease. And the fact is, is even in these red states, um, medical cannabis is something that is now becoming real. Uh, parents of kids who are having seizure disorders are seeing that it's life changing. And, and it's finally, you know, I think it's breaking the dam. I really think we're going to have uh, by the end of this first term of the Biden-Harris administration, if, if we don't have federal legalization of marijuana, um, they deserve to be voted out of office because it's something that they ran on. And uh, it's something that now we're seeing in all of these states, even red states, have massive popular support when it comes to the ballot. So uh, I find no reason to stop and just go ahead and uh, let's legalize nationwide. Let's start the process of, uh, of pardoning all federal prisoners. And again, this is a libertarian issue. This is an issue that Joe Jorgensen ran on. And uh, if it comes to pass, it's a victory in my book. Big victory. Yeah. yeah. Do you think Wyoming uh, had partially to do with uh, the space and the uh, uh, opportunities for agriculture? Oh, well, I think, uh, I think in communities across the country, there's, you know, certainly in a lot of these uh, red states in the middle of the country, there's ample farmland, you know, the breadbasket yeah. of America. And uh, it was to see... A lot of farmers maybe being able to farm an actual cash crop as opposed to a subsidy crop that they're, you know, they're basically growing corn or growing wheat because the government is paying them to do that at an artificial price. I would actually be, again, as a libertarian, be very happy to see people getting off that subsidy program and, and uh, growing a cash crop that can actually make a lot of money. And uh, as you're seeing, as you've seen in Colorado, uh, the tax revenue, even though I'm not the biggest tax guy, um, there is the revenue aspect and it's helping local communities. It's helping fund schools um, and helping fund addiction programs. So there, yeah. it, it's, it's an all around kind of a big thing, but yeah, the farmland yeah. certainly. Yeah, and because it's, it, it enriches the soil. It's a plant that's good for the soil. Whereas corn is a plant that eats the soil. Well, yeah. And there's, and there's, you know, there's two different plants. There's, there's cannabis and there's hemp. And I think, you know, they obviously have two very different um, sets of needs, whereas hemp is, phenomenal for the soil and it can grow anywhere. But when you're looking at like high THC it's cannabis, yeah, yeah. it's delicate. It's grown indoors. Generally, it needs a lot of nutrients. It, it takes a lot of care. So, you know, I think it's important to differentiate what those different plants do for the environment because you, you there are issues, um, you know, in places like Colorado and places uh, like California where you do have um, a lot of these grow operations that are growing high THC cannabis and they are actually, they have a huge water footprint. So there are ecological things that we do need to be aware of when it comes to cannabis versus hemp. 
Um, but I think you're right, you know, especially, you know, in those, those big, you know, state that hemp can be just a massive cash crop. And I think it bears uh, mentioning that, you know, part of the reason why marijuana was illegal in the first place was due to hemp uh, because William Randolph Hearst, who was the biggest newspaper man in the what, 20s, 30s? Uh, some, some, a lot of that. When it became when it when when cannabis was illegalized, they created this huge misinformation campaign that was meant to um, you know attack cannabis, but actually ultimately meant to attack hemp because William Randolph Hearst actually owned huge portions of the logging industry, which which he which hemp was a direct um, competitor okay. of. Oh, and then there's also the uh, there's also the aspect of it the the uh, kind of racist aspect of yes. the war on drugs, which is you know the illegality originally you know was used to demonize you know jazz cigarettes and whatnot and the, and the reefer <laughs> madness and all so that. So many levels, mm-hmm. so many bad. Yes, exactly. And so it was a and you know and of course uh, you go back and you listen to the Nixon tapes, the White House, and who was the chief architect of the modern war on drugs, and uh, he even admits it's about getting. Uh, uh, it's about arresting blacks and long-haired hippies. And so it was about mm-hmm. taking out his political opponents. It was using government as a political cudgel to attack people who were uh, displaying a difference of opinion politically. Uh, and as you know, again, beyond the fact that you should just have the right to consume something in your body, the fact that government is being used in this manner is something that has irked libertarians since the founding of the party. It's no, it's no mistake that the founding of our party is around the time of uh, when Richard Nixon was president. And uh, the powers of the presidency were being used to abuse all kinds of things, including uh, blacks and long-haired hippies, right? So, uh, well, it's, and a, it's a, a lot of our grandmas still believe those propaganda campaigns. Like, they don't want you to smoke that marijuana cigarette and go kill your family. Like, they still believe that. Yeah, yeah. It, th- those were highly effective uh, propaganda campaigns, and they did a freaking number. I mean, we're we're here. It's twenty twenty. And we're just starting to legalize cannabis, uh, you know, again. And the reality at the time when it was illegalized, it was a white elite drug. This was being used by people in the United States who had money and they were enjoying their marijuana cigarettes. But when, you know, later on, obviously, um, you know, Nixon, but prior to that, you had Anslinger and you had William Randolph Hearst. And these guys were you know, blaming Hispanics, um, you know, saying Mexicans were going to rape, rape your wives and they were smoking this wacky tobacco. Uh, when in fact, and, and they were, I mean, they, they were smoking. And Asian people for opium at the right? same time. And Asian so people for opiates. Um, but they turned it into this class or, or this race war when in reality it was, you know, it was used by Mexicans to get through the day. They were the, they were the you know, work, working horrible labor jobs. Um, you know, and then, but the, 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 the white upper middle class was using it simultaneously. Oh, uh, and then, and then, you know, the racism continues through the drug war, even through the eighties, when you have the differentiation of crack cocaine and powder cocaine, and the sentencing disparities and the, uh, the amount of, um, the amount of time that they, uh, that law enforcement is focusing on these issues and, and basically, you know, carving out our, our urban centers of America. There are so many people in this country who cannot vote to simple drug possession that is basically a felony because they had a, a you know a small amount of crack cocaine and now they can't vote but someone who had the same amount equivalent of powdered cocaine they get out on a plea deal they plead down to a yeah. misdemeanor it's just the, the disparities there are so blatant and easy to see so uh again this this drug war 
is not just about the drugs. It is about the fact that there are whole communities in our country, uh, namely poor people and communities of color who have been adversely affected by the government actions of the war on drugs, which, um, you know, if we had, you know, like I, I was talking earlier about Portugal, the, you know, Oregon is now doing its own little Portugal experiment. We see real world examples where there was a, you know, Portugal in the 90s had the highest rate of heroin use in the entire European Union. 1% of the 1% of the country were heroin users. Now, if you think about that. Think about that in a nation. Imagine if we had, you know, in a nation of 400 million people, if we had 4 million regular heroin users in this country, that would be insane. Uh, you know, talk about the opiate crisis, the opioid right. crisis. Right. Um, and so now, you know, they they decriminalized all hard drugs. They established needle exchanges. And what you saw is you saw the rate of drug use dropped. You saw the rate of violent crime cut in half. You saw the rate of youth using drugs, which is like the highest rate of people who become users and stay users, drop. And then we saw HIV rates also drop due to the, the clean needle exchanges. So these are, these are steps that were taken um, by, a, by a community that is not much larger than a, or about the size of a state, you know. Uh, and so for Oregon to be doing this, I look forward to seeing what happens in Oregon and how Oregon handles this issue and, uh, and diverts those law enforcement resources into addiction resources. I think uh, Oregon could be a model for the nation if it's played right. Um, right. I certainly well, hope so. Yeah. And it needs to be played right. I mean, these are these are real issues that, that deserve real accounting. And I think one of the most important things to recognize that a lot of people don't recognize when they think about drugs and, you know, like I'm, I'm watching a lot of these folks uh, on the on the right going, the liberals are trying to, you know, take down America. They want to legalize drugs. They want to legalize sex. They want to legalize child pornography. And it's like, okay, calm down. Nobody wants to legalize <laughs> child pornography. Um, well, okay. Okay. Predators <laughs> want to, you know, let, let's leave them out of this conversation right. for now. Let's talk about, let's talk about the reality of the drug war. And let's talk about the fact that people who are addicted to substances, that is a health crisis. And the fact that, you know, people can understand that now that it's affecting white communities. And this is, so I think there are two things that led up to this mass decriminalization. Mm. One is the opioid crisis. Um, that opened a lot of people's eyes who were, um, you know, white middle class and working class families to go, oh my God, because now everybody has an addict in their family. No, no family is without addiction. Um, so that opened up a lot of people's eyes. And, and then George Floyd. And then people started to see, oh my God, I couldn't believe how racial the drug disparity is. You brought up this a minute ago, Chase, this, um, you know, the differences between penalties for people who were ingesting um, cocaine versus crack cocaine. And the jail sentences were just massively different. And so I think Oregon was kind of this linchpin or, um, you know, this watershed moment, as you said, that is like, okay, it, we're breaking the dam here. And it, I think a lot of it had to do with the opioid crisis. And a lot of it had to do um, with the awareness that came of racial injustice in the drug war after the George Floyd protest. Yeah, I look forward to Oregon um, doing a good job at this and showing that actually decriminalization of drugs not only produces uh, better health outcomes, but is also fiscally more responsible than creating more prisons and funding more police uh, action and things like this. Because if you can show that, if you can show that not only is it a better outcome for your citizens, but it's also actually a better outcome for your tax dollars, um, I think you can see this kind of effort happening in red states across the country. It, it right. certainly becomes an easier sell 
um, once that happens. And again, I look forward to Oregon being that pilot program. It is a state that is, um, it is not a giant state. It's not a state like California or Texas, but it's also not like, uh, you know, Wyoming, where you, like you said, there's lots of empty space out there, right? right? So there, there are major metropolitan areas. There are suburban areas. There are rural areas. It's going to be a decent representation. Uh, it's not the most diverse state, but, uh, you know, it is a state that can show what could be a model for other states and for the rest of the country. And, uh, you know, speaking of breaking the dam and, and I, like we said, we saw so many red states who would have thought 20 years ago, South Dakota would be uh, two to one um, passing marijuana legalization for recreational use, you know? Uh, And I think it is changing of hearts and minds. Like you said, there are people who are, uh, now seeing that there are addicts in their family to, to treat drug addiction differently, but also with the consumption of cannabis, the recreational consumption. I do believe that uh, pop culture, media, uh, a change in our society has been happening over the last 20 years. Um, I mean, just look at the television show Weeds, right? One of the one of the biggest television shows of the early, you know, the what is it, the aughts? I don't know how to say it, the teens, whatever it was, <laughs> uh, whenever that show was on. But it was a huge, huge hit of a show uh, centered around uh, cannabis trade. And now you're seeing other shows that are basically the same thing. And, and it's, it's growing in terms of we're becoming more socially accepting. It's more socially acceptable now for a mother to say, instead of a glass of white wine at the end of the night, I'm going to have a joint. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. Exactly. I was fascinated with, with so we'll get into some more of the other states, but I mean, Oregon is, is such an important one to talk about because we've never, in the history of the U.S., we've never had a decriminalization of this sort. Um, and you look at the ballot measure, you look at the um, the actual measure, it was me- uh, measure 110, um, and it was voted 58.47% versus to 41%. So a million, almost a million and a half people voted to decriminalize all drugs. And that is a, I mean, when, when I graduated high school in 1997, I never thought marijuana would be legal because of, you know, just the way it was perceived in society. It wasn't something that, you know, I I could have ever saw the prohibition of uh, being taken away. But here we are in 2020 and we've decriminalized drugs in a large state in this country. And that's that's a huge moment for personal use. It is a very small quantity. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) This is not. So if you are a dealer, you are not you are not uh, out of the woods. Um, and I think, you know, I just watched a, a, a great documentary on Netflix recently about the drug trade and just the amount of people between where cocaine starts and where and, and ultimately coming into America and the people's lives that are just shattered, destroyed, destroyed by this drug. And, and to think, you know, not to mention, and I think this, this is important because, you know, the cartels in South America didn't exist before Harry Anslinger, um, one of uh, Nixon's uh, toadies. Before Nixon. Oh, sorry, mm-hmm. before Nixon. It wasn't. It wasn't until he did a worldwide um, campaign to illegalize these drugs, and it was after that that these cartels started to form. So the amount of people's lives in South America that have been destroyed because of this gang violence and these cartels can be directly attributed. To the United States government in the 1940s and countries mm-hmm. all over the world. I mean, he he uh, threatened sanctions on countries all around the world. I mean, if you look at the Philippines right now and the fact that people are being murdered 
in the middle of the night because they're suspected of drugs. Yeah, my, oh. my, my, my father just texted me. He's like, oh, yeah, when we were kids, uh, did you ever hear about the movie or the movie Reefer Madness? Yeah. That was, that <laughs> well, was one of those early indoctrination campaigns. So two things. So first, uh, you, know, you mentioned how cartels formed in the wake of the drug war and this, that, and the other. And, uh, and it reminds me to you know, say another, another way to sell ending the drug war to the, uh, the red state folks out there is uh, – you know, a lot of our illegal immigration in this country happens because people are fleeing the refugee violence that's caused by this drug war. And that if we break down the illegality of drugs, you break down the black market, you break down the cartels, and you end the violence in these countries. And, you, and if you want less people coming across the border, which I don't care either way, if you want to come here and work, come here and work. Like, uh, yeah. I'm whatever. Open borders, swing it wide open for me. But if that's really is, is a concern that a, of is yours. That, is, is that, a, um, is that a, a libertarian stance in general? I'm curious about that. I'm going to pull up the platform language for you to read it exactly to you. But yes, essentially it is. Open borders is kind of our thing. Um, but if, you're, if you are seriously concerned with the number of people coming across the border, uh, one way to cut back on that is, as you said, um, yes, I do. Uh, one way to cut back on that the is, uh, yeah, he's crossing the border, is to um, make drugs legal. Because when you do, you're going to cut down on the violence. You're going to cut down on the people fleeing violence. People will be happier to stay where they are than have oh, to yeah, travel absolutely. thousands of miles across the desert uh, to oh, flee this drug violence. The stories are heartbreaking. And just in Mexico, for example, I mean, there are kids who are going to get their arm cut off. They don't join the gang, which is part of the cartel. And yeah, and the second they come over here and ask for asylum, you know, they're met at the border and, you know, just these horrible circumstances. And now you have these huge misinformation campaigns about coyotes and how they're selling children and bringing children over the border. I mean, it's just, it, it's mind-boggling. It's so frustrating because I've had these conversations with conservatives online and I'm going, okay, like, I get that you think Democrats are soft on borders, but let's talk about why we're in this position in the first place. And I go back to Harry Anslinger and I go back to the demonization of drugs and the illegal, uh, illegalization of drugs. And, and I bring up these, you know, how we were the ones who implemented the policies that created these cartels and they do not want to fucking hear it, bro. Like it, they, they, it's as if you're speaking another language They, you know, this idea that America could be responsible for, uh, you know, these problems is just completely foreign to them. Yeah, that's so odd to me because if you don't understand that America has a footprint all over the world and what we do, you know, they say when America sneezes, the world gets a cold. Right. Um, that's, <laughs> that's, very, that's very much true because, I mean, if you look at it in regards to the, the drug trade and the violence that causes, if you look at international affairs when we, when we drone bomb or when we sell weapons to regimes, like mm -hmm. we, yeah, we have a footprint all over the world when it comes to all kinds of things. Um, so you asked me, what is the, like, the libertarian position on the yeah. whole free trade thing? So our platform, platform 3.4, uh, free trade and migration. We support the removal of governmental impediments to free trade. Political freedom and escape from tyranny demand that individuals not be unreasonably constrained by government in the crossing of political boundaries. Economic freedom demands the unrestricted movement of human as well as financial capital across national borders. So we believe if you want to come here and work, be able to come here and work, there should be no unreasonable constraint. Um, you know, basically we support the Ellis Island method, which is as long as you're not carrying a communicable disease that could get everyone sick, uh, and you're not extremely dangerous and you're not going to kill everybody, uh, you're more than likely to come over here and work. Um, how, how do you measure that? Because I think that's one of the things that, you know, you get so many arguments from with conservatives when it comes to border policy and control. 
um, you know, you know, the all of the people that are coming over to to the United States, they're they're rapists and they're predators and they're this that, and and a, a rational mind can step back and be like, it's okay, just it's just not true. But again, we just had seventy million people vote for Donald Trump again. Like, obviously, a percentage of those people still believe that. And then also a percentage of these people, you know, and and it's important. You know, Andrew Yang tweeted the other day, and I totally agree with him on this point. Um, when 70 million people do something, it's important that we step back and examine why they did mm-hmm. that. Um, and I don't think that all 70 million people who voted for Donald Trump are outright crazy ra- uh, racists or, or, or fascists. But what I do think is, is that many of these people felt economically threatened for some reason, uh, much of it due to propaganda, that their jobs were somehow threatened by, uh, by Hispanic labor coming north. Or also, um, you know, the other thing is, oh, well, they use all the welfare which is actually very, very untrue. If you look at the, the stats, you know, it, it, you know, immigrant children, children are taken care of. And um, I, I will find it hard to even find a libertarian who will say, you know what, we're just going to dump children and not give children any cover and any kind of care at all. Because, right. you know, uh, it, that's the last welfare I think we need to be cutting. I mean, I agree, most welfare programs need to go, but uh, that's not the one I'm going to be going after first. It's the one that helps kids. So uh, if that's the welfare you're complaining about, oh my God. Because most other welfare, you have to have a social security card. You have to have proof of a, you know, a job to get like uh, unemployment benefits. Uh, to get food stamps, you have to have like a social security card. So unless you're going through a massive fraud, um, which is illegal, that's very much illegal to have a fake social security card. And by that, that you are very much committing a crime that you're, you're bilking whatever. Um, but if you're just coming here to work, you should be able to come here to work. And that does not, and the thing that so many conservatives get confused is they think that means citizenship, which it doesn't necessarily mean uh, much no. of this labor, much of this labor is seasonal labor. Much of this labor comes here for a few months out of the year during mm-hmm. uh, time to pick the crops and then they go back home. And, and so a lot of them pay taxes regularly. without making citizenship. So they pay more taxes than Donald. Yeah, <laughs> that, that's a great point. And, you know, a lot of people don't, understand that because when you're over here working unless you're just getting paid even even if you're getting paid under the table you're still buying things you're still paying taxes when it comes to um you know purchasing taxes sales taxes you're still paying all of these things into the system and this idea that you're just not paying taxes um you know whether you're documented or not is just a fallacy and you know granted if you're getting paid under the table you're not you know you're not kicking into medicare you're not kicking into medicaid you're not kicking into social security um, and those are a, another topic for another day uh, with, with you, Chase. But well, I can pivot right there for you, which is, you know, if you want to talk about tax revenue, uh, let's talk about all the missing tax revenue from people who would normally be employees of cannabis firms and other groups that could be producing these things, uh, working on a farm and paying their taxes, just like every other worker. But right now they're engaged in a black market, which both has a fear for them and their families from the illegality. But also, uh, you know, they're not. Paying their fair fair share, whatever you know. Uh, you know, I don't like to I don't like to talk about paying taxes, but there is that aspect of it too. Is about bringing people out of the shadows and bringing that industry out of the shadows, um, so that there. But also prevents more abuses by the marketplace. You know, if a, if, an, if a market is out in the open, um, people can clearly see if their employees being abused. People don't have to fear going to authorities because. Oh, well, the job I'm engaged in is in an industry which would get me arrested just for even admitting that I'm in it. And so there's so much exploitation that is removed when you take things out of the darkness and bring it into the light. And uh, I think that's another positive aspect of what we're doing is we're dismantling the drug war piece by piece. And as we do that, we're going to create new industries. 
We're going to have new jobs. We're going to have new entrepreneurs. And we're going to have people who are getting out of this cycle of, uh, of prison and, and, and probation. And so you're going to see so many people who have enriched lives by ending this drug war. That's the thing. This drug war just it destroys lives. And so when Absolutely. we dismantle it, it's going to enrich lives. And that's the thing that we have to keep our focus on is that, you know, don't fall for the propaganda that, oh, if we legalize cannabis, suddenly everyone's going to be a stoner. Suddenly everyone's going to be consuming cannabis. Right. Everybody who wants to consume cannabis is already doing it right now. Yeah. Drugs on the whole are cheaper and more potent now than they were when the drug war started. So if we're talking about making drugs more expensive or harder to access or, or less effective, well, they, they've lost on every aspect. And, well, and, and this is the time when they need to say, we have lost the drug war. It's time to change. Yeah. And I hope, I hope with a new president that happens. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because Oregon in particular, um, like two years after we moved away. So that would be like, what, uh, 16 years ago, yeah. they um, made it a requirement that you have prescription for anything like Sudafed, which now in most states, you have to ask for it at the counter and give your driver's license you and still get it without a prescription. So they tried that route like 12 years ago, obviously completely fell flat on its face and yep. didn't work in any capacity. Nope. Still massive amount of methamphetamine in Oregon. I think it's, I think, huge. Problem. yeah, I think it's one of the, the capitals of the country when it comes to meth production. And, you know, I'm, I'm sure those things have shifted. Um, you know, I, so here's a conversation that, I, that I've had with folks quite a lot. And that is, you know, if you legalize, you know, so we've, so just to be clear, Oregon has decriminalized small amounts of all drugs. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to jail for these things. And they're, and they're, what their goal is, is to then invest in addiction programs and things like that. But that being said, it's, they're not legalizing. And so there's this enormous fear from people who are conservative that, what you're going to do if you do legalize it, meaning, you know, meth is legal, heroin is legal, cocaine is legal. Um, all of these drugs are legal and, you know, you can, you can set the age, you know, whatever, 21 or whatever, but you're still, you're, you're going to create greater access. You're going to create more of an opportunity to, for people to get hooked. What, what do you, what do you say to that, Chase? Like, what's your well, argument against that? Or do you, do you think that's going to be a fact? And, we're just going to have to deal with the short-term consequences and then it's going to get better. Yeah, I think, uh, I think at the end of the day, you're going to have as many people doing methamphetamine as are going to be doing methamphetamines. I think right now it's readily available. If you know the right people, it's cheap, it's easy to get. I don't think if you were to legalize, you're going to have massive addiction uh, of people jumping on methamphetamines. Will there probably somewhat of a higher rate? Will things tick up a little bit? Especially for, I believe, cocaine will probably, you know, that's the drug that I think you'll see uh, probably the most growth in the marketplace, I guess, right. if you want to say it that way. Um, but honestly, it feels weird. Uh, it feels weird <laughs> to say it. It kind of feels weird to say it, right? But it felt weird to say that about cannabis. And now you have right. uh, John Boehner, former Speaker of the House. He sits on the board of a cannabis company who just made a lot of money because their stocks went way up after Election Day. Um, but yeah, so if, if you legalize, yes, you're going to have the short term problems of addiction. Um, but what you're not going to have is think about this. Alcohol has been legal for a long time, correct? Uh, and this is something that Joe Jorgensen said on the stump. So I'm paraphrasing from her stump speech. Pardon me. But, uh, you know, she said, when's the last time you heard of two vodka dealers uh, shooting each other on the corner over who gets to hold that corner? When's right. the last time you had a beer addict break into someone's home to steal the beer? 
the truth is, is what the, there's going to be a marketplace regardless. But what you do when you create a, a legal means for people to get this thing, it's going to lower the cost. It's going to improve. Actually, you're going to have not you're going to have less fentanyl in your heroin if you actually legalize heroin. You'll have less overdoses because of that. And at the end of the day, you're going to create a stable marketplace that you're not going to have. You know, people shooting each other out in the corners. There's still laws against having a bar across the street from a, of a school. For instance, localities pass laws like that all the time. You can still restrict uh, things. You can still restrict things to do this in the privacy of your own. Don't do it in public, whatever. But at the end of the day, what you don't want to be doing is creating an entire marketplace of illegality and black markets. Because that's when you get the real criminality. That's when you get the real violence. That's when you get the real bad times uh, that we're going through right now. And even in in areas where you have legal addiction, like uh, the opioid crisis, it creates black markets because people get the legal... Uh, the legally prescribed prescriptions that they don't really need. Um, and then they sell that at 10 times the cost. So there's yeah. still a black market, even with legal drugs. Not uh, to mention, not to mention people cutting drugs and adding other things to drugs and the purity and, and all of those sorts of things. Um, but I really appreciate your point because this is something that uh, I got into it with my cousin-in-law a few weeks ago with, because I was making that exact point. I was saying, you know, you don't see people, uh, you know, because he, he's telling me that in Louisville, in, it, there there is MS thirteen now, and you know, and if we were to legalize drugs, then US it's just gonna, caused MS thirteen. Yeah, well, <laughs> get get the fuck out, right? <laughs> um, but the the idea that you know you're going to fix it, you just need more law enforcement, and you need you know you just need to come out and out on this harder, and, and it, as opposed to just you know. Pulling the, you know, pull, pulling the um, the fuse out of the bomb. And I, I think we're just so afraid to pull that fuse out of the bomb, um, you know, but but it's changing. Kristen and I talk about uh, France all the time. There's no drinking age in France. But there is a culture uh, of, of responsible drinking, right? There's a culture that if you get drunk outside and you start and you stumble home from the bar, you are shamed by individuals you know what i'm saying so if if we can you know i i think i think it is going to once we decide to finally legalize we're going to pull out you know we're going to just we're going to disrupt the violence we're going to disrupt all of these things that are causing um all of this damage across our society and our world and it's going to be hard at first we're going to see more addiction we're going to see those things get higher but then we're going to, once that wave passes, everything is going to get better. And I think the, 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 the biggest fear is just ripping off the Band-Aid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's always fear of the unknown, you know. And uh, if you're not, you know, if you're, if you're going based on what uh, you know, the government's been telling you, if you've been growing up with Nancy Reagan and say no to drugs and that kind of stuff, it's very scary, you know, to think about it. But if, if you speak to people who are actually involved in the social science and who really understand addiction and who understand uh, the societal ramifications of prohibition, uh, you'll see that it's really something that you should actually be supporting and not really be so scared of. And uh, if you want one more, you know, perfect real world example of how prohibition can wreck lives, uh, look no further than the prohibition of alcohol. We actually passed a constitutional amendment. It was so bad. It was such a bad idea. It created so much criminality, uh, created so many bad things when we, we made alcohol legal that we, we, we repealed it. Right. So if we, went, we went through the step of not just passing a constitutional amendment, but then unpassing it because of how terrible it was. And constitutional um, amendments are fucking hard to pass. They're not easy. Right. 
And then very still the threshold. federal government has had to like blackmail certain states into upping the drinking age. Like New Orleans, it was 18 for a long, long time. And then they were going to withhold um, infrastructure. Funds? Yeah. Funds? Highway yeah. funds. Yeah. Well, and then uh, you always have to remember too, it's like when you have, when you legalize and you take away the stigma of what is illegal, you're going to have more people going to get treatment because if you're right now, uh, if you're right now That's a heroin cool. addict, you're scared to even admit that you're a heroin addict in public because you're scared you're going to get busted and go to jail. But if you're someone who has an addiction problem, you're less scared to do that in a decriminalized or an illegalized world. And so, again, addiction is a health crisis, and it's something that we need to be treating as a health crisis. And we need to be destigmatizing the fact that addiction exists in the world. Uh, you know, I there's a there's addicts in my family. You know, and it's not it's not uncommon. I think you're like you said, everyone has an addict in the family now. Uh, be it alcohol or drugs or or whatever. Um, and so I think you're saving lives when you legalize. That's yeah. the focus is you're, you're saving lives, you're enriching lives, you're, you're breaking down a system which has oppressed uh, and, and harmed, harmed so many people because if we just take this top down, uh, you know, shame on you for doing drugs yeah. and yeah. it, it does, it does, it doesn't work. Right. And because that's the thing that wakes up wanting be an addict. This is people who are struggling in their lives. A lot of times it's self-medication, mental issues and on and on and on, but it's, it's a medical challenge. Not just, I decided to fuck up my life. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And you know, you look at different experiments and, and this is obviously not a human experiment because we can't experiment this way on humans, but they did a rat experiment uh, within the last 10 years or maybe 15 years ago, I think it was. And basically it's called, the experiment's called rat paradise. And basically what it does is it, you know, you, we've all seen the experiments where you give the, um, you know, you give the, the rat cocaine and, and you see what it does. Um, and the rat gets addicted to cocaine and, you know, we go, uh, oh, obviously cocaine is addictive. It's going to destroy you. It's going to, you know, destroy your life. Um, this is, this is a big problem drug. We need to legalize it. We need to, we need, need to ban it. And, what they did was they created two different cages. One was a rat paradise where the rats had all the water they could drink. They had all of the, you know, the males and the females so they could have all the sex they wanted. They had, you know, great treats. They had wheels where they could run on their, uh, you know, run to their heart's content. And they had all of these different fun things for the rats to do. It was actually heroin water. Oh, that's right. It was heroin water. So, so they gave um, the rat paradise experiment. And then you had the rat in just a cage. Uh, by themselves. And what you found was the rat in the rat paradise would try the heroin and they liked it. Don't get me wrong. They liked it, but they didn't experience addiction and they didn't spiral out of control. They liked it. And then they were like, uh, no. And then they went back to having sex and, and running around and playing and exercising and doing all the fun stuff. And they actually avoided it and just drank the regular water. And the rats who were, you know, in the cage, they ultimately killed themselves um, with the heroin. And so that speaks to connection. It speaks to environmental factors that are, and again, you, you got to be careful comparing these things to human beings. Um, but at the same time, there's a lesson to be learned here. And it's that if you are, you know, raised in an environment where there's always strife, there's always grief, there's always, there's things that are constantly coming at you that are uh, making you so keenly upset and depressed and anxious 
um, you're going to have a harder time and you're much more likely when you experiment with that particular drug to become an addict versus if you know, you're born in an environment where people listen to you and they care and you can have fun and play and you've got you know, food to eat and you've got uh, a world to explore, you're much less likely to become an addict even if you experiment with drugs. And I think that's an important, you know, I think that's an important lesson we can learn from our, our little rat buddies. And not what oh, yeah. Nancy Reagan taught us. Not what Nancy Reagan it's taught really, us. It's really, really bad for young adults when they were being good and listening to Nancy and then they try something and they go, oh, didn't kill me. That's a great point because <laughs> now you have, you know, you have, you've been told your whole life drugs are bad, drugs are bad, okay? And then, you know, you, you trade drugs for your first time. Like, you know, I remember the first time I ever took ecstasy at a club and I was like, oh my God, I'm in love with everyone. The world is amazing. Like everyone lied to me and told me this was a horrible thing. And it's actually one of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced. How could I ever listen to any of these fuckers ever again? They're all liars. And that's a danger you run into with prohibition because you're creating this false narrative that actually makes people go, fuck the police, fuck the system, fuck this, fuck that. And, you know, versus, you know, what we're talking about, ending the war on drugs, which means, you know, making a society better place because you're dismantling cartels, creating an environment where you've got people who are able to, you know, um, use drugs on their terms and they're not using bad drugs. They're not, um, you know, putting them in a position of danger and they're having to drive to downtown and, you know, potentially, you know, get in trouble or, or whatever. There's so many instances bringing that all the way back to racial justice, I can't, like, this frustrates me more than anything. That was like one really long. That was a really long sentence. But this, mm -hmm. is, this is what frustrates me the most about the racial disparities in the drug war. You have these hypocritical anti-drug folk and they're saying, well, you know, you should have never done that and you shouldn't have done this and that's why you're in jail. And then you have those same people coming down on these kids and their families and making fun of them because their dad's in jail and, you know, black kids don't have daddies. And it's like, oh, like this is the most insidious, disturbing, disgusting outcome you could possibly have. And you're perpetuating it by blaming the victim, by blaming, you know, all these people who are stuck in a system that is perpetually, um, you know, recreating itself because of, your lack of empathy and understanding, it's, it, mm -hmm. uh, I just like, I literally so, want to cry. So, it makes me so angry. So let's talk about, so let's talk about who it is that perpetuates these systems. Who is it that is the opponents of legalization, of decriminalization? Who are the people that, as we're fighting for this with this new president, this new Congress, who are the people that are going to be stepping in the way? Uh, first and foremost, you have uh, the, the three big lobbies, the three big P's, pharmas, prisons, and police. Those are the three P's. Those are the three people that are most against legalization. And why? Pharma. Uh, okay, you legalize cannabis nationwide. Well, instantly the amount of antidepressants that people start taking immediately drops. You can grow your own medicine in your backyard. You don't have to rely on a prescription or going to the doctor. And so naturally, big pharma, big medical groups, they don't, they don't like this because they like to sell their drugs. They want to sell their drugs, not the drugs you can grow in your backyard. Right. right. Uh, the ones that they can't get a cop or get a, uh, not copyright, but... Patent. On. Mm -hmm. yes. And then, and then the next P is you have uh, police. Police, of course, they get funding to fight the war on drugs. Right now, it's about fifty billion dollars a year is what uh, departments all over the country get funded to fight the war on drugs. Uh, so they get their big toys, they get their flashbang grenades, their tanks, their nice uh, bulletproof vests. They get all, basically everything bought and paid for them as long as they can use the excuse that they're they're fighting the drug war. 
And then so War on no, Drugs did take over for alcohol prohibition on in mm-hmm. certain ways right. with the oh, yeah. war force. And and, uh, and so you have so you have the police aspect there. And then last, you have the prison lobby, the people who make money off of people being in jail and who want harsher prison sentences and less uh, people getting ticketed or community service or sent to rehab. You have the people who are uh, private prison owners and not just private prison owners. You, you know, the people think, oh, OK, so there's a company that owns a prison. It's not just them. It's the companies that make the bedding for the prisons, the companies that make the clothing for the prisons, the companies that make the food for the prisons, the companies that's, uh, that make everything for the prisons. Um, so those people... Um, have a vested interest in making sure that we keep locking people up. And so it's those are the people that we're going to have to be fighting the next, uh, for the foreseeable future as we fight to dismantle this drug war. Those are the three enemies that you're going to be seeing the most pop up. And they have lots of money. They have lots of influence. Lots. And they have lots and lots of members of Congress in their pocket. So it's up to us as citizens to stay informed, whether you vote Republican, Democrat, or Independent, stay informed and go, we need to vote for the people who are, who are wanting to not be bought and paid for by the enemies yeah. of ending drug prohibition. Well, and, and again, for all those folks who say, you know, well, America is not a democracy, it's a republic. First of all, it's a democratic republic. But let's, let's put that aside for a moment. We have ballot measures state by state. So in a representative democracy, which we are generally... We also have direct democracy, and that's what these ballot measures are. It's giving the choice back to the people directly. And this is what, you know, we do live in a democracy because we have the ability within our state to make choices and to let the people speak. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't for these direct ballot measures, the, there would be no fucking uh, decriminalization in Oregon right now. There would be no recreational use of cannabis across the country. So it's up to each of us in our individual state to, to represent our democracy by getting the signatures necessary to get these things on the ballot in our state. And when we do that, we the people actually begin to speak to the powers that be because ultimately they can't hold on long enough uh, or, or they, can't, they can't hold the power as long as we're chipping away, chipping away, chipping away at that mm-hmm. power by using our voices directly to get the things that we want done in our state. And, you know, God damn it, that shit trickles up. And eventually, um, you know, I, I guarantee you, John Boehner, who is now on the board of a marijuana um, uh, company who's making shit tons of money 20 years ago, he would have told you, absolutely not. That's the most horrible idea in the world. But the market speaks. And I think that speaks to, to you, Chase, about this idea of the market speaking, because ultimately these folks, all they give a shit about is money. Like you want to pretend that they're for your abortion rights or they're for this or that or the other. They're not. They're there to make money and to become lobbyists once they're voted the fuck out of office. That's all they're there for. Um, I do think there are good people that go into politics. But I think there's a big, like, it's very difficult. Not very to few good people leave it. Exactly. <laughs> a lot of good people go in, but very few people leave it. Uh, and so, and when you mentioned direct democracy, first and foremost, I want to say, you know, I am the chair of the Libertarian Party of Atlanta. Uh, I am very much involved in the state party and in the national party. And I'll say this right now. Uh, if you are in a state right now that is looking to gather signatures to end the drug war, to dismantle the drug war, to legalize cannabis in your state, Look to your state's Libertarian Party. You will have natural allies. You will have people that are willing to knock on doors and get signatures. Uh, we are used to doing it just to get our names in the ballot. So 
Uh, we're, we're regular petition gatherers here in the Libertarian Party. So to progressives out there, to like-minded Republicans who might want to be uh, ending uh, prohibition of drugs, use this as a resource. Let's form coalitions. Let's get things done. That's something that libertarians love to do. We love to work hard uh, for, our, for our beliefs. And so uh, you have a natural ally here with libertarians. So if you're a progressive out there and you're needing some extra foot soldiers in the war to end the war on drugs, well, then uh, look to your libertarians. We're willing to do it with you. Guarantee you. That's, that's something that we will work with you on. Uh, and well, you just gave me goosebumps, man. Oh, yeah. Um, so uh, but that's, that's the truth. And uh, because this is something that will require a little direct democracy and a little bit right. of standing up the powers that be. And uh, that's only going to get done if we do it together. So, uh, you know, I, I want to see it on the ballot here in Georgia in 2022 or 2024. I'm willing to go out and get some signatures, uh, especially once we get that COVID vaccine. Uh, we can start knocking on actual doors again. Uh, yeah, I'm ready to do that. So um, go solve the dog problem. Thank you. Go solve the dog problem. <laughs> my dog is my dog is passed out. I don't know if you can see here. Hold on. I don't see him. Hold on. There she is. Oh, and she's done. Ski. She's adorable. Yeah, she's just asleep as hell. She's just yeah. not wanting to do anything. Yeah. Now back to where I was. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. No. And I, and I think that you know we live in a very powerful moment in history and and you know there is a lot of chaos right now i think you know we're in this weird period now we've just you know elected uh president elect biden um you know he is uh you know he's been elected um and we have a president who now refuses to accept the result of that election um, so we're in this very weird space politically where I think everybody, you know, you've got people on the right who are, you know, now knowing what it feels like to be a liberal snowflake a little bit. They're acting like it. Um, and you've got people on the left who are going, I will, I will not let this happen. Like this election will not be stolen from us. Um, you know, you got 40,000 uh, votes in, in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, this idea that there's been 40,000 illegally cast vote, votes for Biden is just so absurd. You go back to 2000 and you look at what happened in 2000. We were talking 900 votes. The, the, the battleground state was Florida. Bush was up by 900 votes and Gore wanted a recount. Okay, fine. Recount the vote. But there was none of this about uh, stealing the election and illegal votes and this, oh. that, and the other. Mm -hmm. So I got and, and, and 2000 is a little bit of an, I just watched a documentary on 2000 today. So it did kind of pique my interest. And uh, the apples and oranges comparison there is the fact that they were not looking for illegal votes to throw out legal votes. What they were looking for were votes that were undercounted due to dimpled chads and not being perforated. Uh, they were looking at the butterfly ballots in Broward or in Palm Beach or wherever, uh, Palm, you know, Palm Beach County or wherever that was. Um, and then they were looking to recount. Now, here's the thing. Uh, Republicans out there who may be watching, I hate to be the bearer of bad news. We're going to have recounts because many of these states are within the margin of error for recounts. Yeah, let's recount. But, but let's recounts on average uh, move a few dozen votes one way or the other. I think not the highest lot. was uh, a few hundred votes. Um, so it's it's not likely to change anything. Now, uh, to those who are screaming voter fraud uh, and this, that, and the other, I remind them that I am in the state of Georgia, uh, a state that is now positive for Biden, in a state that has a Republican governor, a Republican secretary of state, a Republican House, a Republican Senate, um, a Republican judiciary, 
So when the lawsuits get thrown out in Georgia, it's from a judge that who was appointed by Republicans in the state Senate and, 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 and approved by a Republican governor. So you cannot say that there's political bias here. And so if you really want to look at it, uh, Georgia is clearly a Biden state. The recount's going to happen. Biden is still going to win this state. Um, and so even if you want to say uh, Pennsylvania, well, he is leading by a lot in Arizona. He's leading by a lot in uh, Nevada. Those are not going to be overturned by any sort of recount either. But even if you gave Pennsylvania to Trump, Biden has this. Biden is your president-elect. It's time that people grow up and understand. You know, everybody gave uh, people... And I will say this, um, it, the liberal anger over Donald Trump did happen well into the inauguration. That's where you see the famous the screaming ah, girl, that, that, that meme, right? That came from the inauguration day, right? That is literally as Donald Trump is swearing himself in, being sworn in. That was her reaction. There will be people right. who are making that same reaction on the other side as right. Biden is being. Right. Uh, we have a QAnon congresswoman-elect here in the state of Georgia, who believes that the Biden family is involved in this QAnon circle of pedos who are controlling everything. And it's didn't Tom Hanks. She, didn't she try to dis? Is this the one? Is this the woman who actually tried to distance herself a little bit from QAnon at some point? Or no? Um, is that a different I don't know one? if she ever did because all I've ever seen is her full throatedly, you know, Q ranting. Now, maybe she. She stopped after she won her primary and was running in a general election. But I'm with this, you. I only saw the ranting part. Okay, this was uh, this was a few months. Like I, I heard about a a woman who was running for Congress and she was a QAnon believer. And then I heard later, this was well before the primary, that she backed off. But this may be a different person. I may be talking about something completely different. And, and if you want to talk about the level of cultism that is happening in the GOP right now, um, that if you do something against Trump, you're immediately persona non grata. Um, look no further than our Secretary of State here in Georgia, Brad Raffspringer. He is a uh, diehard Republican. He is a twice endorser of Trump. He is a, bl- a blood red Republican, dark red. Right. And he said, there's no election interference. I've not seen anything credible. Nothing's come to my office. It seems credible. And now, and now both of the Senate candidates, going after him. Uh, Purdue and Loeffler, are calling on him to resign. To resign, and yeah. then all of the new twenty, and then all of the newly elected members of Congress who are Republican have all signed a letter asking him to resign because clearly he is bought and paid for by the giant liberal conspiracy. It's like this guy is right. as red as red gets. <laughs> well, and this is the most difficult logic for me to get around. Right? It's like okay, you got all of your Senate seats as Republicans, but. We cheated Donald Trump right. out of the election. Same if ballot. Democrats were cheating, Lindsey Graham would not be reelected. Period. <laughs> they might not have been able to get away with cheating Mitch McConnell out of it. But if they were manipulating, they would have manipulated it just enough to get Lindsey Graham out of office. Well, there, you there, cannot is, there is something. I, I, I think legislators and, and all of them. I'm just going to play the devil's advocate on that argument real quick. So I, I think the devil's advocate argument would be, well, these these were these Republican senators were elected in states that ultimately went for Trump. So they weren't, the Democrats were not as successful at the election fraud uh, because uh, they were only doing it in Democratic states. Wouldn't that be the counter, wouldn't that be the counter argument? Yeah, Georgia. Sorry, look at Georgia. Right. So Atlanta, no, no, no. Georgia. Yeah, George is the weird outlier there. And that's the thing that I try to remind people is that we have a Republican governor, Republican everything. Yeah. Right. So that's yeah. the one thing that flies in the face of it. And maybe maybe Biden fluked out, whatever. Well, um, and I think it's like my uh, one woman that I was talking to saying, you know, 
My grandma is Republican. She's voted straight to the Republican in every election on a time, but she's voting against Donald Trump. The first time she heard him speak, she looked at me and said, I would slap that man. Well, so and a then, bunch of people went in and they voted for the Republicans. They just didn't vote for him. Right. And, and that's that, what happened. That we split and, the, the tickets were split. And that is the big elect that is the big lesson of this election that Democrats need to heed. They need to understand. You know, Nancy Pelosi went on television and said she has a mandate right now. I don't know how you go on television after losing House seats, after losing, you know, possible wins in the Senate. When and, you were and, supposed to crush the Senate, you were supposed to take you don't have a mandate, Nancy Pelosi. You don't. You don't have a mandate right now. I'm telling you, Democrats, you need to understand. People did not vote against Republicans. They voted against Donald Trump. Right. That's who lost. Absolutely. Naturally, Absolutely. If, you, if you put up a generic Republican who even did a half-assed response to COVID, they would have beaten Joe Biden. Joe Biden is not some sort of super strong candidate. The Democratic Party is not some sort of super strong position right now. No, it's and a they need, mess. And they, need to, and they need to take heed and understand because right now they're acting like their shit doesn't stink. They're acting like they're on top of the world. In reality, they're in a very precarious situation. They're about to, and, I, and I'm telling you, short of a miracle, you're going to have two more Republican senators out of Georgia because uh, Georgia is a, is a red state. Both of the Republican senators were leading, uh, or no, uh, certainly Purdue was. Loeffler was not, but that's because she had a very, very well-funded challenger in Doug Collins. You combine the two of them, they were 15 points ahead of Warnock. So it's it, it's it's going to be an uphill battle for the Democrats to win these two Senate seats in Georgia, no matter how much money they throw, no matter how many ads they throw. It's going to be a challenge for them. And so I would say also, if you're a uh, you're a Georgia Democrat right now, you need to be thinking, how am I going to get that two to three percent of the libertarian vote that voted in this election? How do I inspire them to get out and vote for an Ossoff or a Warnock in the runoff? Because that is something that you need to really be thinking about. What are your priorities? Yeah. If your priority is ending the drug war your priority is ending the actual wars, if your priority is criminal justice reform, you need to speak those values right now and make sure the libertarians hear it. Because those are the type of things that will get libertarians out. Uh, because frankly, a lot of us just don't like incumbents. We like cause a little chaos anyways. Right. Um, and so, and, and I'll tell you right now, um, I, I'm wide open with where I may vote or not vote in this runoff. And I'm willing to listen to all four of the candidates. And I know well, a lot of libertarians feel the same way. Yeah. And speaking Democrats and their failures, one of our huge failures, one of their huge failures that they never show up for special elections. They rarely show up when they should. In Georgia, specifically in Georgia. You know, yeah. You well, know. We have, we have two runoffs in Georgia and Atlanta anyway. Yeah. And I think it will. I think they will show up this time. The question is, will, can, can they possibly outpace the Republicans? Um, and, you know, I, I think the, the real question is he, Here's here's the biggest concern for Democrats uh, in in this entire um, election is and and you covered this beautifully, Chase. But number one is you know we ran against Donald Trump. This whole election was against Donald Trump, and we just banked on this blue wave because of it. But the people really did speak, and they split the ticket. And you know, yes, you had seventy million people vote for Trump. There's this huge Trumpism coalition, which is going to be here for a while. And, and Democrats and the left need to figure out how to deal with this situation. And they're not going to do it by blaming an ex-president. It's not going to happen. They need to figure out what they really fucking stand for and actually stand for it. Now, I'm, you know, I'm the kind of person right now where I'm so furious with Donald Trump and I'm so furious with the Republican Party who's enabling this maniac that I'm willing right now to fight tooth and nail. I, the kitty gloves are off. I will fucking 
fight. But catch me in two years when I'm looking for somebody who's actually going to get us out of foreign wars and going to end the drug war and help us with racial justice reform, uh, criminal justice reform, and really do the, the hard work, the inspiring work that needs to be done. I, you cannot count on my vote for that. You need to bring it. And, you know, to, to be truly honest, they probably will still get my fucking vote because I can't stand Trumpism and I can't stand the Republican politics and the instructionism and the we're the only ones who can fucking govern. But they're, but I'm. We're the only ones who are vote counted. <laughs> they're not yeah, going to well, get, right. They're not going to get the votes that they need. They're not going to get the turnouts that they need because they're not bringing anything to the table. And what I love about, you know, what I love about libertarianism is y'all are fucking like bringing new policies, new ideas, and you're, you're attempting to, to, to bring in this new energy and, uh, you know, these, these important policy issues. But this, you know, this stale Democratic Party is about to be, in, you know, for a rude awakening uh, real soon if they don't get their shit together because it's a mess. That tent get, is a mess. They need to get their priorities straight. And there are priorities that if they do... I hate to give Democrats advice. It's going to help them because they don't want to party. But what's going to help them is if they do pick these priorities uh, along the lines of uh, criminal justice reform, uh, broad criminal justice reform, broad immigration reform, broad reform to ending the drug wars. These are things that can uh, cross-pollinate across all parts of their party plank, across all parts of the tent, but also are going to uh, energize the activist base that's in the party, the progressive yeah. left of the party that maybe isn't driving the car right now, but they're it's, certainly the ones who are giving the directions. And uh, that is something that is important for their party to understand is that there's a whole new young activist base uh, who are ready to kind of shatter the expectations and shatter the dichotomy and the shatter the way things have been done business as usual. And uh, they need to harness that energy if they want to continue to have success. Because right now, you're right, they won on the sheer non-Donald Trumpness of Joe Biden. Yeah. And if they, uh, and, and if it had been any, again, if it had been any other Republican, have been Mitt Romney running against Joe Biden. I think Mitt Romney would have won this election. Uh, you know, if there weren't, I, I hate to say it. That's it's the truth. I really do. Because I, I don't think, first off, if you had a Mitt Romney running, you wouldn't have had the turnout the Democrats had. They wouldn't have had the anti-Trump vote. You had the I highest turnout in history. Uh, you also had, you know, Donald Trump did energize a lot of people too. We, right, we can't the forget that, the, the fact the that the dance and all that oh my stuff. God. The fact that the Democrats are the highest turnout in, in history and they didn't take back Senate seats is, is I mean, you can't sad. get more, you can't get more, I mean, it's sad, but you can't get more clear. Like, if you can't learn that lesson, if Nancy Pelosi can't learn that lesson, if the Democratic Party can't learn that lesson, then it's, that party is smoke. It's they need to done. replace her. They need to replace her as speaker. Right. She and does not party, need to be speaker. Young, young progressives not get excited about Republican life. No. They just can't. They can they can get motivated to vote against Trump, but they cannot get excited about somebody that and, and don't and, get me wrong, like I enjoy like I've I've been impressed with Biden over these past few days. Like he is he has held his cool. He's coming out every day. Um he's speaking. He's moving towards his, his transition. Today was just life. I mean anything I, I like anything sorry go ahead. I'm liking them because I'm not remembering them. They're so not like not controversial and not like crazy that I'm not worried about it. Like I, I, I'm so looking forward to not having to hear what the president thinks every hour of every day. And not <laughs> <to each other. laughs> 
Like yeah. that's the thing. It's like a lot of this is just Trump fatigue. Like a lot of people are just so tired of the last four years that they're like, yeah, bring me the boring old white yeah, guy. Exactly. Yeah. Or like he's going to say something and I can generally believe it or not be afraid of the repercussions of what he just right. said. Right. Like we're not going to, you know, we're not going to see a civil war because of something he says or something he tweets or, you know, this sort of thing. And it's like, and I get it. I mean, you know, Trump derangement syndrome, as they call it, there, there's a modicum of truth in it. And, and for, for that, I think us as uh, progressives, we need to get better at wearing our big boy pants. But at the same time, we've got to fight for policy, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's got to be about the things that matter to us and fighting for those things versus just fighting against Trump. And, you know, when, when he comes out and says, you know, there, there's good people on both sides, you know, like these are the kind of things that liberals just like lose their goddamn minds over and they should, but, you know, it, it's a distraction. It keeps us from talking about policy. And so the entire last, you know, four years building up to this election is about how to get Donald Trump out of office. Who are we without Donald Trump? Yeah, it's like uh, it's the dog that finally caught the caught the mail truck. Like you don't know what to do afterwards. You're the, you're the coyote. You're the coyote who's caught the roadrunner at this point. Like right. uh, now, what do you do, right? right. And uh, and I think it's gonna be interesting seeing. Uh, you know, I always look forward to watching the duopoly tear itself up. So I'm gonna love watching the progressives and the, and the more moderate wings just like go at it for the next two years. I mean, I, I let me just go ahead and start popping my popcorn now. Um, <laughs> But at the end of the day, you're right. I think without Trump, they're going to need to find some sort of new foil. They're going to seem, you know, they're going to need to find their uh, their heart their and soul. soul yeah, I guess and political parties have souls. I mean, corporations are people. So, um, <laughs> I mean, co- coalitions coalitions can have souls, and I think that's what we don't have right now in the Democratic Party. And that's why, you know, like I'm somebody who is progressive, um, but I'm also, you know, I I. You know, I told you this a way back that, you know, I voted for Gary Johnson in 20, 2012 um, because, you know, I was getting I was getting tired of the, the, the Republican right Democrat. Right. And never getting anything done meaningful of value. And sure, you know, Obama passed um, Obamacare. But, you know, for me at the time, that wasn't that wasn't that big of a deal. Um, it did help in the, in the short term a little bit. And I know it helped, you know. 20 million people and I'm, and I'm happy for that, but you know, it didn't push any of the things that I found truly important. Like, you know, that's not, not single payer healthcare. Like that's not, that's not what that is. Um, and I know you're, you're not for that, uh, at all, but you know, for me, you know, I'm going, okay, let's do, let's do the real work. Let's do the real business. And I just, I just never saw it. Um, you know, and then Obama, really upset me with with Clint Michigan and how he just botched all that and it's like oh my god and so I want to say you know when you're talking about Trump derangement syndrome you know I wish conservatives would admit to themselves that there was a bit of Obama derangement syndrome too like oh 100%. Barack, Obama, Barack Obama okay uh first off you had the birtherism and then the Muslimism like is he a Muslim all that's crap then it's also uh Barack Obama was not the second coming of Mao Zedong he was not he was not the uh he is not Joseph Stalin he is not he is a corporate Democrat who yes. is a who is who who basically passed a health care bill, which the people that were the most happy about that were health insurance companies because mm-hmm. it basically ensured a whole new crop of uh, people for them to provide their products and services Employee. to and that are mandated. 
Um, and so, you know, I think that the, as much as there was Trump derangement syndrome over the last four years, that's just a symptom of our, our, our partisan uh, polarized politics because we had Obama derangement syndrome for the whole uh, eight years before that. Um, there was a lot of hate for George W. Bush. I would argue much of that was warranted because, you know, he was a war criminal, but then again, so was Obama, but a lot of people gave him the credit, you know, for doing the exact same things. They, they swept under the rug and gave him a peace prize. And so yeah. you see all this stuff and you go, how does this happen? Like, why do these people believe this stuff? Like, why do these people believe all this extreme rhetoric? And it's because right now we're in a system where there's two parties and so we're playing good cop, bad cop with each other. Like, oh, well, you know, sure, we fucked you a little bit over on the health care bill, but you can be with those Republicans. They're really bad. Or, yeah, sure, we right. banned your bump stocks and we want to pass red flag laws, but look what them Democrats are trying to do with your guns. And so right now, we're in a position where there's like, it's, it's this extreme polarization where we can demonize. You can literally say like, you're Republican, you'd be like, yeah, Democrats, uh, they eat the blood of children and you'll have a certain amount of people believe it. And you can have uh, and a group full of Democrats and be like, yeah, Republicans just want to murder innocent kids overseas for profit. And they'll be like, yeah, yeah, all that's true. Yeah, 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 all that's true. And that's so, all a direct result of extreme polarization. You're, you're um, absolutely right. So here, here's an interesting fact um, based on what you just said. Republicans estimate that one third, this, and these are, these are survey averages, but Republicans estimate that one third of Republicans, or excuse me, Republicans estimate that one third of Democrats are LBGTQ, okay? One third, the, mm -hmm. the, the actual average is about 6% of all yeah. people. Uh, <laughs> and here, here's the other one, 38% of Republican, or 38% of Democrat, or excuse me, Democrats believe that 38% of Republicans make over $250,000 a year. It's only 2%, 2% of, of Republicans make over $250,000 a year. Democrats, the average Democrats believes it's 38%. And, you know, so this is, this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with mass misinformation. And if we're going to move forward, if we're going to, and I think um, Jason brought this up the other night, um, that, you know, we need better information. And it's not going, we're not going in that direction because we live in a social media world. We live in a world built on algorithms. We live in a world that's built for micro realities. And so, you know, where do we go here? Even, even, even the, the micro realities that Facebook created now, all these folks are, are dipping, all these conservatives are dipping over to parlay or parlor, however you say it. Um, and now you're seeing this, you know, this exodus. So it's going to get even more micro realities. And so where do, where do we go from here? I, I just, it, it's hard to see. It's hard to see how this gets better before it gets worse. Yeah, it's um, it's definitely a problem that we're going to have to have. And part of the way you solve that is by having dialogue with those who don't think like you and don't believe like you do. Um, I'm actually um, joining a think tank right now that is committed to I am the libertarian representative. They are creating a board made up of libertarians, Democrats, Republicans and other uh, you know, independents as well um, to basically have a place where we can talk open mindedly, handedly. Um, and just exchange ideas in a way, you know, and, and understand that nobody's hundred percent right all the time. Um, and I think that's important. And, and that's something that social media, you're right. It's created echo chambers. It's important for us to step out of them. And it's important for us to recognize the echo chambers. You know, if you look at my Facebook feed and you think who's going to win the election just based solely on my Facebook feed, well, Joe Jorgensen's taking 50 States, baby, because <laughs> there's 
from all over the country on my Facebook feed, right? And so you have to you have to step outside the box a little bit, um, and, and maybe that requires you putting yourself in a place that's a little uncomfortable. You know, uh, one of my one of my favorite things I ever did with my friend. Uh, we're both super liberal. She's a well, she's she's a hardcore leftist, but we went to a, a, a livestock trading uh, convention. We hung around animals all day and farmers and people who were certainly on the red side of the on the fence, you know. Right. Um, but we took time out to experience the world in a different thing. I learned a lot about alpacas, for instance. But, uh, we went to it's an important. alpaca convention. Yeah, we, I've, we've actually been to an alpaca convention. <laughs> uh, but the point is, is that it, it was a chance for us to like step outside of where we normally would be doing things and outside of our normal audience. And uh, it's important to do that politically as well. Um, don't just listen to one side. Your Twitter... Sh- I try my best not to let my Twitter uh, be a, uh, an echo chamber. I have progressives in my Twitter feed. I have my local news on my Twitter feed. I have national news in my Twitter feed. And I have friends that I know um, right. that are very diverse. Uh, and so I, I try to actively take a role in my own social media to ensure that I'm not stepping into too much of an echo chamber. Um, you're going to get the band hammer with me if you're a hardcore racist or you, you know, you insult my mother or something. But other than that, you know, you're not going to be removed from my realm of ideas. I, w- I want to see what other people are thinking and other people are doing, uh, so that I can accurately gauge what's going on. Yeah. Um, That's actually it's becoming rare in our world. Uh, Jane says everything is so adversarial; it's become football. Uh, Jane also says I'm excited for you, Chase. I think you will be a great representation for the LP. Thank you. You already are a great representation for the LP. Let's just get you, let's see what you look like in office. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> well, you know, from your lips to, uh, to God's ears or whoever's ears, you know. Do it. Uh, but, uh, yeah, well, I, I promise, though, and I want to segue into this because I did want to talk about this earlier. I said this to you. I promise that if I am ever elected to office, I will not create a sock Twitter account used to... Uh, used to attack people online. Because- oh, yes. This is fantastic. So explain what that is. Explain what that means, a stock Twitter account. So a stock Twitter account is when you um, when you create basically a Twitter page, you know, a Twitter account that is not yourself. Uh, it's typically a fake avatar. It's usually an animated avatar most of the time or a picture of a celebrity or whatever. And uh, it's basically where you go to basically shit posts where you can like say whatever you want without, you know, you have complete anonymity and so you just feel like you can do whatever you want. And then now there are many sock accounts uh, in the conservative circles where conservatives will create a sock account where they themselves are a cisgender, heterosexual, white male. And they create sock accounts of being African-American or a woman or gay uh, for the purposes of being like, well, I'm gay and I like all these terrible policies that are anti-gay. So there you go. Right. Um, and and it, it sounds crazy, right? Like it sounds like something insane that somebody would do. But uh, Dean Browning, who is the uh, he was up until Election Day, he was running to be, uh, I believe it's the seventh congressional district in Pennsylvania. Um, so he was running for office. He was on Twitter and he said, let me know. Let me know when you want me to share the screen. Oh, yeah. So he was basically talking about, you know, someone was trolling him, basically saying that, you know, uh, whatever Obama built in eight years, Trump took credit for blah, 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 blah. And so then he commented and you can put this up. I'll read it here. Uh, I'm a black gay guy, and I could personally say that Obama did nothing for me. My life only changed a little bit, and it was for the worse. Everything is so much better under Trump, though. I feel respected, which I never do when Democrats are involved. Now, he tried to say, 
because people are like, what the fuck is this about? Like, <laughs> and he tried to say, well, this is actually a quote from one of my supporters. You just didn't understand. Now, never mind the fact that there's no quotes here, right? No quote. Um, an investigative reporter, Ford Fisher, he's a lovely friend of libertarians. We love him a lot. Um, he actually found this guy's troll account that this guy had, he had commented on other things when he had been putting things. And like, there's this guy who claims to be like the gay black Trump fan and his profile was created in October of 2020 and it's him. And it, he got caught. He got caught basically That's thinking amazing. he was commenting on his sock account, but he was actually commenting on his blue right. check mark candidate account. Right. So for those of you who can't see the screen, yeah, for those of you who can't see the screen and are listening, so his, na- his name is Dean Browning. And as Chase said, he's got a fake account called, uh, what was the fake account called, actually? The Make sure account. I have it here. Hold on. All right. So, so you're pulling it up. And so, as, as he said, he said, you know, he retorts as his sock account, but he accidentally did it as himself with his verified check mark. <laughs> well, and the picture of his white. Face his filling de- the screen. Stupid fucking face. Yeah, where is it? Oh my god! It's one of the group pages that I have. I mean, this is just. I uh, you know you look at this and you go wow, and you wonder how much of this goes on, right? How many fake accounts? How much? How many people are pretending to be these minorities who are would usually be diametrically opposed to a, a certain policy? And they're using these fake accounts, and he, and you accidentally show up as your real self. Like that—that just—that's fucking karma right there. You, you piece of shit. Well, that's what I had mentioned. You guys were talking about Carly thing, and uh, another friend of mine had put up a copy from their page where somebody had said something about like, you know, I hate liberals, and if you hate liberals, let's go. I'll kill a couple liberals, yes. and blah 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 blah. And I was like, well. When I read about this platform, I read that it catered primarily to Saudi nationals. I'm like, so don't you think this is somebody just messing with Americans and trying to turn them on each other? It very well could be. That's a great point. And, and that, that speaks to the Russian bots. That speaks to Twitter. That speaks to all of these fake accounts that are spreading misinformation. Um, and, and the answer is yes. Like, I, I can't imagine somebody being so foolish. No, sorry, never mind. Yes, I can. It, it can <laughs> absolutely happen. People are dumb as fuck. And there can absolutely be somebody who says on Twitter, we need to, if every conservative took out two liberals. <laughs> but yeah, it, and it, I'm sure a lot of it is just bullshit, fake, you know, bot and, and sock accounts. And it's just, it's, Throwing Absurd. something out there to see what. Well, there's also the bravado too. And there's also the bravado online too of people will say things online, even if they are under their own personal account, they would never say to your face in person. Right. Uh, and I say this as a libertarian, you know, libertarians, so you're not a real libertarian until a libertarian tells you you're not a real libertarian. Uh, <laughs> that's a very common um, And so we, we argue a lot, right? As a party, there's a lot of inner party, whatever going on. And there are things that people have said to me online that when I see them in person, they immediately shake your hand. How are you doing, man? It's like, you've said terrible things to me online. You've said horrible things to me. I've probably said horrible things back to you. You know, but here we are shaking hands, acting like we're best buds. And right. that happens a lot online. A lot. People 
have this bravado, they feel like, okay, well, there's a, there's a level of separation. And also it's just like, oh, I'm going to, oh, I'm going to, I'm going to type yeah, here. Yeah, and yeah, these, yeah. Oh, they're going to love this. Oh, they're going to, I'm going to get them here. So good. Oh man. Right. Five people are going to like this comment. It's going to be so amazing. <laughs> it's, like, it's like an endorphin rush that people get from being online. And it's like, dude, you just need to chill the fuck out a little bit. Like maybe this is why we need to legalize cannabis more. You're going to see a lot sure. less of this is more, more like hitting the bong a little bit and just saying, well, and- you know what, man, let it go. And in, regards like to, and in regards to getting things done, like it's not a direct comparison, but I spent two hours yesterday online with Verizon trying to fix a very simple problem. And I got fed up and I drove over to the store and it took them 10 minutes to fix it. In person yeah. is better. In, per, in person is better. And, you know, we, we, we've had our, our God bless this child, you know, our, <laughs> our youngest who has been dying to go to public school. We've homeschooled her forever. Right. She hates us for it. She wants to go mm-hmm. to school. She wants to go to school. She wants to go to school. So last year we were like, okay, you can go to a private school first, get your academics up, and then you go to public school and, you know, have at it. Congratulations. You did it. Um, as soon as she was ready to go to public school, the pandemic hit. So we've been like, you know, nine months of fucking, you know, and it's just like, oh, and then, you know, and then she goes to public school and now she's only two days into like, literally, she just went back two days ago. Um, and she got on her high school soccer team and, you know, she's thrilled to be out there, but she's also experiencing like she's learning all she's, her mother hated high schools so much <laughs> and wanted to homeschool her in the first place, <laughs> all the clicks and shit. So that wasn't a very good illustration of the point about Bitchy why teachers. it's about why it's important to be face to face. Well, no, no, no. It's important. It's important to face high school face to face. That you can understand how terrible the real world is. Yes. That when you get there, it's like real world with training wheels. Right. It's not um, a shock to the system. Yeah. You don't suddenly get out of your, you know, your bubble. You're like, oh man, so, you know, everything was great. I private school, everything was just so fantastic. And but you get the real world. Like, entirely the fair. Most of the time, regular adults do behave much differently. Now, than and I'll say this: That's lots true. of homeschool kids are also perfectly well adjusted to. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I'm all about parents making whatever decision they want with, you know, as long as they're helping their kids educate, there's, there's programs out there. There's certainly homeschool programs that are better than your local public school program, depending on where you are in the country. Absolutely. We have some close friends, a family of seven Um, kids range from plans, probably what, six now to 16, 16, 17. Um, They are traveling the world. They have been traveling the world for the past at least years now, maybe a little longer, homeschooling by traveling the world. And Archer's family a, style. Yeah, yeah. He's a handyman. Uh, it's, a, it's a skill that's uh, very much in demand around the world. Yeah, so. and, and if you're looking, if you're, lo- if you're struggling here in the U.S. and you're a handyman, good Lord, these people are wanted across <laughs> yeah. the world. Like, wherever they go, they're just like, people covet them. Yeah. They're like, oh, stay in my house for a year. It's yeah. fine. Just fix all this stuff. I mean, from Thailand to <laughs> Albania to, you know, it, it's extraordinary um, how many people need good handymen. Like, it's, it's like uh, somebody who can do Noted. pretty much everything. It's Yeah, it's, it's extraordinary. And you can travel the world being a handyman very, very easily and getting room and board and make money. And If your wife's uh, kind of a genius uh, navigator. scheduler. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's quite amazing. And, and people, you know, like, here we are like going, okay, Kristen and I have been putting together our list, right? Like, where would we go if we had to get out? Like, we've been watching The Handmaid's Tale. And this is not, this is not a good time in history to be watching The Handmaid's Tale. 
uh, because you're going, Jesus Christ, this is, this is bad. We're, this is going to be real bad. Where are we going to go? New Zealand. Like, we don't want to be the last ones out. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> See, and this again, libertarians have the natural advantage because if there's people that I know that have uh, facilities in the middle of nowhere in the woods right. that are heavily armed and fortified uh, and have lots of canned goods, it's libertarians. So I know, I mean, so, I know some pub, I know some pubbies who are like that too. When the, when the shit hits the fan, it's like when the world restarts itself, there'll be a lot of don't tread on me flags. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Um, uh, but yeah, so, (laughs) but in terms of like, uh, getting back to kind of what we were talking about, education, all that stuff. Uh, yeah, there's, it's no one size fits all for everybody. And, uh, it's, it's something that, you know, parents should be making that decision. And like you said, you know, when you were talking about brands and wine and how over time culture kind of molds itself, uh, it takes responsible parents also be educating their kids about drugs and things like that. Uh, And so when you are a homeschool parent or just a regular parent, it's up to you to like educate your kids on the dangers of drugs. Don't rely on the government or schools to do that because uh, as we've seen with Nancy Reagan and the school don't say no to drug programs, they're woefully, woefully unprepared. Um, So parents out there have to be responsible, especially in this world where we are dismantling the drug war. Um, you know, it's now going to be less of, okay, well, don't do this because of you're going to get arrested and go to jail for the rest of your right. life. It's going to have to be, don't do this because there's very adverse health effects. It can mess with your love life. It can mess with your, your, your family. Um, so it, it has to it shift. Bring on and schizophrenia. <laughs> well, and you, and you, and you still have to be careful about, again, not lying. Right. So if, if somebody told me like, you know, don't do ecstasy because it's going to make you dehydrated and you could pass out from dancing and die. Um, and then I did ecstasy and I loved it. And I'm like, I didn't pass out from dancing well, and die. Then I'd be like, see, X- no, ecstasy too. Oh. Like people forget well, to drink water. It's because when you're dancing all night on ecstasy, you forget to drink water. Oh, and then the you could, opposite. right. And then, the you, yeah. And then you could kill yeah. yourself. Uh, or yeah. Anyway, but like the, I think it's important uh, you know, as, as we said, that you need to be as honest as possible um, and give your kids uh, good advice. Um, and, you know, and the more we can learn, the more we can understand. And, and as these drugs become legal, you know, the idea is we, we need to give more resources to parents. We need to give more research to communities. We need to be teaching these things in schools. We need to be giving real scientific advice, real studies, and, and really map, you know, what it looks like to be a recreational drug user versus an a- a addict. And, you know, let people see what the what the two things actually look like and teach them from a young age. You know, I was talking to, again, going back to my cousin-in-law who was saying, you know, if you legalize drugs and, you know, my family and your family, they're all going to be addicts. And I'm like, since when is the only person you listen to the law? Like, do you do you wake up in the morning and go, let's Doesn't see. Doesn't have what, to listen to the law. What's, what, what? Yeah, because his daddy's a judge. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Airing the family laundry. Sorry about that. Um, you know, do you wake up in the morning going, what's legal and illegal? You know, is, is that how you plan your day? No, it's not. Um, you know, so this idea that you're, you know, you're going to be dooming society if you legalize drugs just takes away so it's much personal. It's just naive. It's just so well, naive. It's naive and it just, it, it completely distracts from personal responsibility. And if you're a Republican, you know, you should be a person who's about personal responsibility. But for some reason, when it comes to these issues... Allegedly, you, just, <laughs> you have to put allegedly. You have to put allegedly a lot when you're talking about the doo-wop. 
Um, <laughs> um, you have to preface. There's a lot of there's a lot of finger quotes. Like, right. you know, we care about the little guy. We right. represent the average American. Tr- we don't it. take any pack money. Right. Um, a lot of that going on in the world right now. <laughs> Make sure you put allegedly in there. But yeah, allegedly the Republicans are supposed to be the party of individual responsibility. Right. Um, uh, you know, I'll argue that point all day long. But yeah. yeah wanted to put their money where their mouth is, they would be able to say, you know what, it's not going to be the government's or government school's jobs to educate my kids about the dangers of drugs. That's my job to do. It's not going to be the police's job to make sure that my kid doesn't end up fucking up in the world. That's my job to do. Right. Uh, it's not a taxpayer expense to make sure that my kid knows, uh, you know, knows not to get fucked up and drive, right? That right. is uh, my responsibility as a parent. Uh, and I think most people... Uh, feel that way, even if their politics don't necessarily reflect that. Um, but yeah, well, it, speaking speaking of the market solving problems, how about Uber for helping with uh, drunk with driving? Dr- yeah, I tell people all the time, Uber's done more to stop drunk driving than Mad ever did, and they're very <laughs> mad about that. Ever did. Um, <laughs> but that's the truth. Like, and it is because we provided a cheap solution, and and then you really think about then you really think about how many people have died because of the monopolization of taxi companies and urban centers yes. and how expensive it was to use taxis for the longest time. Uh, and then you think about, well, that, there's a negative marketplace effect that we just opened it up. Uh, well, you know, so there's, there's more to that too. It's our, our lack of investment in um, public transport and how spread out we are and how much need Americans have for space being far away from our neighbors. The list goes on. Oh yeah, urban urban sprawl is a huge part of a drunk driving, you know, and, and it has been for years. But again, you know, you look at the you look at Uber and you look at the marketplace solving a problem, and you're you you know, if you can't if you can't be bothered to take like Uber is so fucking easy. If you're fucking shit faced and you can't be bothered to to get an Uber, like that that's so on you. Like there's no fucking excuse left for you. And this is. Horse, your yeah. horse will always take you home. Your horse, <laughs> yes, and Montana. You, and you mentioned, you know, earlier about how, you know, again, uh, how Europe it, there's less drinking because it's been destigmatized. But the thing that they also have is they have much stiffer penalties for driving drunk. Yes. You drive drunk oh. in Germany or in France, you're going to get a very stiff penalty because you never drive again. Yeah, well, because you are you're legitimately putting the risk of other people's uh, lives on the road. There's a right. that's a, to me, you know, as a libertarian who believes in the non-aggression principle. That's certainly an area of aggression. If you're using your inebriation and endangering everyone on the road, uh, that's something that I have a serious problem with. And that's where I think, you know, you're, you're the right to swing your fists ends where my nose is. Uh, the right for you to drive ends when you're driving impaired enough to be a danger on the road uh, and again, beyond a reasonable amount. In that case, it's purely a privilege because public transportation is available. Nobody's going to lose their job if they can't drive a car. Exactly. Right. And, and I think that's part of the reason why there is this tiered system when it comes to DUIs, because you can literally destroy somebody's life. Uh, now, granted, they could kill somebody else. So, you know, it, you know, it is complicated. But at the same time, you know, we have such urban sprawl in this country that you literally by taking away somebody's ability to drive, you're taking away any ability they have to make an income. That's dangerous. Well, uh, Dahlia says living in Oregon, I wonder how much more money will be lost while not making money arresting people for having drugs? That is a great question. And I think there will be probably tax revenue <clears throat> issues uh, when it comes to that. But that's why 
that's what that I think that this is part of ripping the bandaid off, right? Because you need to rip, you need to make it hurt. And so and so the voters made it hurt for the system, right? So they're making it hurt. So they're going, okay, we're gonna lose all this fucking revenue. How do we fix this? And so they're gonna go, well, we gotta legalize more. Because <laughs> well, right. then you could tax it. Well, right. well here's you- go, 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 go. Sorry. Well, what I was going to say is, is, you know, um, in terms of the illegality and like making money at the end of the day, I don't care that this costs the state money. I really don't. I don't care that the state is going to be making less revenue because there are less people going to jail and there are less uh, people getting probation, having to pay penalties to the state. Uh, fine. Let's keep that revenue. That revenue is not does not belong to the government. That revenue belongs to you. And guess what? Now you're going to have more money to go spend at your local store, or your local uh, movie theater, or your local whatever. And guess what? That's going to improve your local economy. I'm sorry. There are going to be a few cops that maybe lose their jobs. There's going to be a few less probation officers. But what there's going to be is going to be more money to go spend at local restaurants and uh, to pay for your kids' dance lessons or to get your kid braces because now you're not paying hundreds of dollars worth of probation fees every month. So uh, at the end of the day, yeah, fuck the state. I'm sorry that they're making less money. The the fact is, is that money staying right where it needs to be in the hands of the people who earned it and they can spend it as they choose to. Um, but, so. but I think the next step to that is that you can you go from you know decriminalization of all drugs in Oregon, and then you go to legalization, and the state can make back that money. And I know that's not your interest, but I, for me, it's like okay, now that money can be reallocated to ensuring we have uh, you know police properly trained. We can ensure that we have uh, mental rehabilitation services, which I believe we can is part that, of their plan. Right. There was a there was a well laid out plan. So, for example. Uh, Cody, our foster son, who worked with kids who were having legal problems and in detention, he would be the type of person, he's no longer in Oregon, he moved to Hawaii, but who could transfer from a juvenile situation to a kid's rehabilitation. Right. right. Mm-hmm. Um, Jane, Jane said, this is from part of our conversation earlier, I think you can get a DUI on a horse. <laughs> Only if the horse I is drunk. I think that's true. <laughs> Only if the horse is drunk. I know drunk. you can get one on a bicycle also. Oh, Keith just joined us. Uh, Keith, if you if you have any anything on that, so Keith is actually an officer uh, in Alaska, and he is actually for the legalization of drugs. I'd love to hear any anything further you got on that, Keith. And if he knows if you can get a DUI on a horse, yes, can you, uh, Keith? Oh, he's in Alaska. He's a cop in Alaska. <laughs> Keith, can you get a DUI on a horse? Please, please help us here. We need to know. And does the know horse have? Wait, what uh, is it? Is the horse, the horse have to be because I argue right, right. it knows where it's going and it's walking just fine. Right. That horse is going to walk a straight line. Right. Yeah, the exactly. horse is in charge. You're no yeah. longer driving. Right. Right. Yeah. right. It's just where it's going to go. At the end of the day, if you're wasted enough to be too drunk to drive the horse, you're not driving the horse. You're riding the horse. Right. Well, <laughs> the horse driving. is going to go where there's food. Yeah, it's going to go where there's food. Usually. Well, I mean, I mean, I'll be back you, in- okay. <laughs> I mean, you can, you can technically, you know, if you're drunk, and you could weave your you horse weave into your, traffic. Yes, you could weave your horse into traffic. Okay, let's see. Wait, Keith says no. <laughs> All he said was no. I think he said. I think he's saying no. You can't get a DUI while on a horse. Uh, oh, Alaska statute says motorized vehicles. So, uh, so that's not even bicycles. So you could get a you could get a DUI. Uh, not get a DUI on a bike. Is that right, Keith? Maybe it probably varies from state to state. I know there's a couple of states where you definitely can get a bike. UI. Uh, Jane says you can in Kentucky. I'm pretty sure uh, that makes sense. That's where Mitch McConnell's from. So, yeah. Any anything to to suppress the uh, the individual? But Alaska has a lot more wide open 
That's so true. I that's true. I'm curious, Keith. Has have you guys uh, finished counting your ballots yet? When is that? When? <laughs> when? When? I was just I was just giving Keith a hard time trying to figure out if they've finished counting their ballots. Does it in, matter uh, if they finish counting? Their <laughs> well, the problem is, is that when they get cold, they get stuck together, and it's really hard <laughs> to peel them apart. And so it's 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 like they're Eskimo ballots at this point. They're just kind of like nothing. That's actually not PC to say anymore. Oh right, um, yeah, it's not PC to say no, Eskimo no, no. anymore. And I don't even know if Inuit is still. No, PC. Inuit is the tribe. Okay, that's, okay. That, but but I don't know that all Eskimos are Inuit. Yeah, right I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I do know that Alaska had a cat that was a mayor for many years, and he passed away a while ago. Makes me like Alaska. I'd like yeah. Alaska now a lot more. Alaska, Alaska's an interesting place. Yeah, Keith just texted me. He says, should I call in? And Keith, you could definitely call in if you've got good internet. You're more than welcome to join us. Um, but yeah, it's 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 definitely. Uh, <laughs> I'm just curious. I'm just curious if they're they're ever going to finish their ballot counting. Like they're they're over there with Nevada, just like. Well, you know, you away. can't blame the fiftieth in education. So counting is just obviously not their strong suit unless it's the blackjack table. <laughs> Um, they can count every time they get 21 ballots, they bust and they have to put them back in the pile and reshuffle again. And it's just, oh, they keep doing it over and over. <laughs> um, oh, right. somebody yells. So I just, so I note about Nevada. I just, I just put a uh, real quick before you say that, I just put the link in, uh, Keith, if you got good internet, feel free to hop on. I just put the link in, in there for you. Uh, sorry, yeah, go so, ahead, Chase. So, um, speaking of the president and uh, the state, Nevada, <laughs> counting ballots, um, I went to Nevada and I was like, oh, what's this giant gold building over there? And that's the Trump Hotel. Uh, and the guy goes, they don't have a casino in there because they won't give him a casino license because they don't trust him. Ah! <laughs> it's like, <laughs> and I know, so I know. Like, I want to, dude, like, the early owners of all of the casinos were mafia and they don't trust Donald Trump. Well, I just want to ask, I want to ask conservatives, like how many of them are willing to let Donald Trump watch their child? Like, I just want to well, know. Even worse than that is he's apparently this huge businessman. Now, let me tell you right now, if you have the money to start a casino, start one. If you're in an area, cause they, it's hard to lose money in a casino. The yeah. games are literally designed for the house to win most of the time. Right. It's, a, it's designed you to make the money yeah. it, it, it's it's literally one of the hardest businesses to really fuck up to, I think. to fuck and, up and he and he finds a way he finds a way um keith are you on duty right now <laughs> never mind i didn't ask that question um, so I just finished a class. So I'm the school resource officer for my little city that I live in. And uh, I just took a class on love and logic, first of nine parts. Now I'm delivering some stuff to uh, one of our COVID patients. Oh, wow. They live near my house. So I'm taking some stuff home for one of the kiddos that didn't come back to school. <laughs> so are you guys, so are you guys still counting ballots up there? Like what's going on? I have no idea. I think what's happening is they're they're probably waiting to see if we're actually going to be the state that decides the election. <laughs> like going. everyone else is done, and then we're going to see if we can actually make a difference. 
<laughs> yeah, I don't think I don't think that's a real thing. I don't think that's happening. <laughs> <laughs> They're enjoying their moment in the sun. Yeah, <laughs> we're pretty like, much almost exclusively red here. Yeah, no, no, for sure. Yeah, it's it's definitely going red. I mean, there's no doubt about that. I mean, but it is interesting because I I read today um, that there were uh, more ballots outstanding. I believe in Alaska. I think it's like 140,000 ballots still outstanding in Alaska. And if those are mail-in ballots, I'm just saying, I don't know. It, well, here, you know, here's the thing. Uh, Alaska is so red now because the craziest blue. Democrat ever, Mike Gravel took all of the Democrat energy out of that entire state and put it within himself to go certifiably insane. Uh, and and that's why everyone else in Alaska has to be red because there's just no blue energy left. There's Mike no Gravel blue energy left. Mike Gravel is uh, so I don't, I don't know if any of your listeners are familiar with Mike Gravel. He I have is no the, idea who that is. Oh my God. So he's an Alaskan senator. He read the Pentagon Papers into the senatorial record. So he's got that distinction. But he also ran for president in 2008. Wait, wait, wait. He read the Pentagon Papers into? The- yeah, he was a senator, so he read okay, it into the so, record. So, so we're talking about Nixon era here. Yeah, so he's old. He's in his 90s now. And uh, okay. he ran in 2008 for president. And then he ran uh, in 2020. He was going to try to run the Democratic primary. He's super left. He's the left of Bernie. And, uh, and he had And he had these 16-year-old kids who were running his Twitter profile for him. And they managed to get like a mil- you know, like, bunch of donations and enough to where he was almost on the debate stage. If he had gotten like a little bit better polling, he would have been on the debate stage as like a 90-year-old. And he's like, I don't think I'm going to win. The only reason I'm going in there is to help Bernie and Tulsi. They're the <laughs> only ones I like. And I'm going to go in there. I'm going to help them. It's like, I, was a, I was a big fan of Tulsi and, and Bernie and Yang. Those are my, those are my three uh, that I like the most in the, in the Democrats that ran. Like actual like people with policy positions, you know? Yeah. I'll send you Gravel's uh, famous 2008 uh, uh, his, his campaign commercial where he just he so he's in Alaska. It's next to a lake. Uh, there's a lot of beautiful lakes in Alaska. There are. And, uh, there's like this rock, and you just see him. He picks up this rock, throws it in the lake. You see like the water ripple, and he just goes and he stares deadpan at the camera like this <laughs> for a good thirty seconds, and it reveals the <laughs> and. Uh, and it's basically his whole, it was supposed to be like, well, one, one stone in the pond creates the ripple. It's right. like supposed to be this, but it's just this old man shuffling around. <laughs> he was old. He makes Bernie Sanders look young. <laughs> well, he read the Pentagon Papers. Into, I mean, that, that's pretty extraordinary. Oh, hey, Keith, Keith, what are the laws on, what are, what are, Keith, what are the laws on podcasting and driving in Alaska? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to. I had to. <laughs> okay, wow. I'm a you I thought we were friends. Oh, we are. We are. No, I'm just. I, I'm. T- I'm totally I, kidding. I will tell you, the bottom of this bus is really nice looking. The bottom of the bus? Yeah. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> are you saying I backed over you? Uh... <laughs> you threw me right under this thing. <laughs> well, Lord. Don't worry, we're at we're at like the we're at the two hour mark, and there's like two people left listening. Now, I I will say that the audio version of this podcast gets gets the decent reach, but um, yeah, there's only two people listening right now, so don't worry, you can say whatever you want. <laughs> we are making something for the record of humanity. That's right, exactly. 
It, it's all about for the record. Uh, Chase, you just sent me something. What'd you send me? Yeah, I just sent you the Microvel ad for you to enjoy later. Um, I'm <laughs> going to actually have to be heading out in a little bit because I have a uh, board meeting of the Outright Libertarians to go check out. So um, I did want to plug one thing before I go, though. Yes. Please do. So Outright Libertarians, they are a group I'm a, a fundraising director of. And uh, tonight we are announcing the winners of our drag calendar contest. We have now 12 libertarians from across the country who will be posing in drag for our calendar. And uh, you will be able to purchase that calendar just in time uh, for the holidays. So for your, for your LGBT friends or for that homophobic uncle that you really want to get something funny for for Christmas, uh, you can order this calendar and uh, raise money for charity and do lots of good with it. So I, uh, I, uh, you know, spoiler alert, I'm in the top 12. So if you want to see me in a oh, dress, shit. I'm buying one. It's, com- it's coming. So, so okay, so, one for my cousin and one for you. Yes. Where, where do we <laughs> chase? Tell us, tell our listeners where they can find that calendar. Well, right now we will have the store up eventually. Uh, eventually it will be through the proud libertarian, I believe is the storefront, but it'll be on our website, outrightusa.org. Um, we'll have that store up in the next couple of weeks. Once we get all the photos together, uh, and available for pre-order and shipping out. So outrightusa.org for anybody who's interested. Um, but yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. Cool. That's fantastic. Cool. Chase, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, is there anything else you want to, uh, any, anywhere else we need to find you? Anything else you want to plug before you dip out? Yeah, find me at Chase for Liberty on Twitter uh, and at Liberty Nerd Pod, Liberty Nerd Pod, because I was going to have a podcast at one time. Uh, on Instagram and uh, Chase Oliver Libertarian on Facebook. So check me out there. Fantastic. Chase, thank you so much again for joining us. Again, if you if you weren't aware of Chase, uh, he is a leader in the Libertarian Party in Georgia. Uh, he ran for Georgia's fifth congressional seat uh, after John Lewis's seat, and he will be running again. So keep an eye out for him on your local ballots. If you're in Georgia, uh, Chase, we know you're going to do big things. Have a fantastic day. Bye. Evening. All right. Later. All right, Keith, I got to know. So we've been talking about the drug war. I know you showed up late. Uh, I know you, you're a busy, busy man and a very productive man. Um, but I am curious real quick from a, and, and we're going to be, we're going to be wrapping up here in a second, but I am very curious from a law enforcement perspective, what is your stance on the drug war and, um, and Oregon's new law to decriminalize all our drugs? Yeah, Mike, so you know that um, I'm I'm a libertarian. Um, I believe in personal liberties and freedoms. We've had this conversation before. Now, I'm not speaking, you know, on behalf of my department or any. Of course not. I'm just speaking on behalf of myself. Um, Yeah, I, I personally think that what you do inside of your own home should be outside the, the reach of government. And, um, you know, as long as you're not hurting anybody with your actions, I think that should be something that we're allowed to do. As that's our liberty, right? Life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. That's right. what makes you happy. You should be able to do it. My problem is if your decisions start uh, causing you to, you know, to go out and rob and steal and things like that. Like now, I have a I have a big issue with that. And now your actions are starting. Or other people, and that's where I think we should, you know, we should hold quite sternly um, those folks that do that. Um, but as far as you know, 
I, I think there, there's a lot to be said about regulation as far as uh, the quality of the, the stuff that folks would be buying would be more pure. So they're, you know, they're, they're not having to mix fentanyl in with methamphetamines to get people high because they're taking garbage methamphetamines. You know, so if you have a pure regulated market, people can take less doses. I think it would reduce the stigma of having, uh, you know, something that's illegal. And I think it's the, the, the door on the marijuana has been opened just recently. So I don't think, you know, we're not going to see this yet, but I'm sure at some point, like the new car smell is going to wear off. Right. You know, a bunch of people are going to go try it. They're going to be like, ah, this is stupid. I don't like this. And then they're going to stop. <laughs> right. Like, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, people are going to be like, "Whoa, meth is legal! Let's go!" You know, like <laughs> I just, I just don't, I don't see that. You know, right. I just don't think, I don't think that's going to be an issue. Um, I might be wrong. You know, I, I don't, I don't know. The, the only problem with this this experiment is we don't know until we do it. Right. You know? We might legalize them and be like, "Oh, that was a bad idea." Well, you know? but I mean, it, but I mean, at the end of the day, like, why not? Yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, you go ahead. No, I was just going to say, uh, you know, at the bottom line is that if, you know, we got we got we got to do the experiment to see what happens, right? And so, what better place to do it than Oregon? Right. And also, <laughs> the, the one thing that I forgot to bring up and we haven't looked at the actual legislation, but I was wondering if it included drugs that are typically used on other people like rufinol, for example, like mm. they can't have legalized personal use quantities of rufinol. Sure, of course you can. I mean, if, 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 all, if all hard drugs are decriminalized in small amounts, of course you can, because people use rufinol personally. Like, a lot yeah. of people who don't... As a sleep aid? No, as, a, as an intoxicant. Because you can use rufinol as a, you know, a relaxant. Now, in, it's in very small doses. So, what, what... I don't even know what rufinol is actually prescribed for. for. Yeah, I don't yeah, even right? know. Um, but I, I do no. I think again, I, it, for me personally, it goes to yeah. If you want to use rufinol in your house and, and do whatever that does to you, which I don't know, uh, other than hot the bath. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm just winding down with my rufinol and hot bath. So I had an argument with one of my coworkers about this very thing, and, and his main issue is like, okay, so now I've got somebody who overdoses on heroin and. The, the medics have to respond. They have to give this person Narcan and revive them while well, I'm paying my taxes to do that. Right. And he's like, I don't want my taxes to go to that. If it's legal, all these people are going to go. They're going to OD and all this. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess you're right. But, you know, it's, if it's, doses it's, are controlled, if the product is controlled, if it's pure product, if doses are right. controlled, like maybe they won't. And right. you're already responding to people. Like, I was like, dude, if a guy goes out and eats cheeseburgers from McDonald's every day, you're going to have to respond when he exactly. has a heart attack. Like, yeah. I'm still going to respond to that. You know, if a guy's drunk in a car, I don't show up and go, oh, you're, you're drunk driving and you crashed and you're hurt. No, sorry, man. You did that to yourself. I'm not going to help you. No. Like, <laughs> right, right. Fight, just help people. Right. He's right. like, well, right. I want to help druggies. And I'm like, but you are, you kind of already are, man. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and you probably know from having to rescue people, you probably know a lot more about it than I do. But I've read some really, really interesting studies on heroin in regards to security and how it's the it's the street product that creates so many problems for people that 
in societies where, in experiments in societies where they've made small amounts of pure heroin available to them, like most people take themselves off the drug within two years, like a two-year spectrum, and they just stop doing it. Well, not to mention, I mean, heroin was legal in the United States in the 1910s and 20s. Oh, right. Dr. Bob. Yeah, yeah. You could go, yeah, Dr. Bob's elixir, like, you know, like the heroin was in, you could walk into your local pharmacy and get heroin at the time and it wasn't mixed with all these other things and it was pure. And so there was this ability to like, you know, and, and people weren't having these same kind of toxic shock issues and withdrawal symptoms that they have now with all of these, you know, mixed drugs. And, and you know, so I, I think there is something to be said for that. Yeah. Hey, Mike, are you guys going to be on for a couple minutes more? Uh, I think we're wrapping We're actually wrapping up now, but I think, your internet's pretty decent. We got to have you yeah. on for a full show, man. Thank you for well, delivering I'm, I'm stuff. My, to uh, I'm using my cellular data instead of the internet today, but I got to drop off this stuff for this COVID kid. So I'm going uh, to right. jump off. We'll get well, back on in a minutes if you're still here, but uh, if not, okay. I'll say good Keith, Keith, it's great to see you. We are going to say good night, um, but I want you on a full episode to talk about all this good stuff. And um, yeah, uh, Yep, and we'll uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you for hopping on, and uh, have a great night, everybody. And, uh, quick shout out to uh, all the Marines out there. Uh, oh today. yes, it's the Marines' birthday, isn't it? It's today. Tomorrow's veterans. Is there a different Marine day? Semper Fi. Uh, t- today is Marine. Sorry, Marines' birthday first. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the it's the day before Veterans Day. Is is the well, Marine? It's no, it's November tenth. It always has been November tenth, seventeen seventy five. Okay. Um, Veterans Day is the 11th day of the 11th month. The 11th hour, the 11th day, the 11th month is when we stopped fighting World War One. Ah, ah, okay. And then, and and the and so the November 10th is the day that the Marines were established. And Tun Tavern in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Tun Tavern in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Tun Tavern. Tun Tavern. So, so the the Marines got started. Establishment still exists. Can you visit it? No, it's gone. Okay. That's yeah. sad. That's sad. Sad. Super sad. Yeah. All right. Well, well you know, well, anyway. instead of instead of ending on a sad note, we'll just uh, <laughs> we'll just wish you happy birthday. Thank you for serving our country proudly. Thank you for being a fucking marine. Uh, yeah. You know, and uh, and and thank you for doing what you do in Alaska, man. Yeah, man. My pleasure. I'll talk to you guys later. Love you. All right. Bye. 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 As the globe continues to shrink and the power of information screams forward, every action, every idea has a chance to catch fire and set the world ablaze. In this time of great uncertainty, we look boldly in the face of calamity with cocktail in hand. Join us every single week as we discuss the technology, politics, and social issues facing humanity's global future. If you'd like bonus content, our weekly newsletter, or an opportunity to join us live, simply go to cocktailsandcalamity.com to join the movement. You can find us live on Facebook at Cocktails and Calamity every Friday at 5 p.m. You can also watch or listen anytime on YouTube, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify. Join us live, engage in the conversation. We'll see you there.